Eric Lopez here with you. Uh, we will have the Black and Gold Benaret show here in a little bit, but uh, obviously this week has been a difficult week for UCF alums, UCF uh, family, whether you're a, uh, in the football family or just a alum, a student, even a professor, as uh, UCF's own uh, Otis Anderson was uh, shot and killed late Monday night, Tuesday morning in his home in Jacksonville, allegedly by his father. His mother was shot. She uh, thankfully has, as of we talk, uh, out of the hospital. Uh, just kind of still even hard to comprehend with everything that's transpired this week. Uh, I'm joined by our old friend, Mr. Brian Murphy, who uh, has, is always good with words. And I'm glad to hear he wrote for Black and Gold Benaret, hear his thoughts on Otis. And I wanted to have you on here, Brian, before, because you covered him all his entire career. You got to spend a lot of interactions with him, covering him, whether it be media availabilities, post games, and you obviously watched a ton of his games up close in person. This has been, this has hit hard, I think, for the UCF family. This is affects not just fans, but affects professors that probably taught him in school, classmates, coaches. Uh, this has been a difficult week, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think, I think the best way to describe what Tuesday was like is just, um, so many different emotions, but it's all pain and shock and anger and fury and sadness. And it's just, it's just terrible because for all we know about Otis Anderson, everyone, not, there has not been anybody who has had like a bad word to say about the kid. Always like really gracious with his time, really selfless, just a nice human being. And now he's gone. And the circumstances, as alleged, make it even more heinous that it's, it's just really hard. It's, it's, it's inexplicable to, to comprehend what has happened and all coming to grips with that. And that's sort of what I tried to do on, on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning was like come to grips with it myself while also trying to be positive about what Otis Anderson gave to all of us. You wrote for the Black and Gold Banneret about Otis, and I thought something that struck at me that you said other than Mackenzie Milton, no other UCF player during gave more memories than Otis. Just kind of expand on that, why you felt that way. Yeah, well, it's certainly in this, in this I call it the Gilded Age of UCF football, right? So this is the 2017 to, you know, you can even include today if you want, but really 2017 to 2019, 2020. I, you know, I think Mackenzie Milton is number one in terms of like, remember those sorts of moments, but Otis is number two. And I think there are, like off the top of my head, just like a handful, two handfuls of things he did on the field. I'm not talking about him as a person off the field. We can get to that in a bit. But on the field, things that he did that we will always remember. Uh, the screenplay against USF that, that, you know, before the Mike Hughes touchdown, the perfect play as called by Adam Amin. Uh, you know, he, he scored the, he scored the game tying touchdown in the, in, the, in, the, in the Peach Bowl that tied the game at 20. And you have never looked back, went on to score the 14 in the next 21 points and won that game. Um, you know, getting them back in the 20, in, in the 2008 uh, AAC title game with a long pass play after the uh, halftime. Um, you know, you know the, 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 the famous photo that Brandon Hellwood took of Otis completely juking an FAU defender out of his jock in 2019. Um, and that's just like, that's like a, a small like summary. I went through some more and there's so much more that I could have gone through, but, um, but yeah, in terms of us as fans, that's really what we're approaching it from. We're approaching it from a fan, from a fan standpoint, because that's all we really knew him as. We knew him as Otis Anderson 
the football player, first and foremost, he gave us more to remember him by or more moments of, of, of pure greatness than almost any player of this current run of success. I think back to the 2018 title game where he caught that touchdown, broke it open, and remember he gave the peace sign. And that build, and that you were there. You were there in that press box. That place erupted. Uh, and it changed the momentum of that game. I mean, that was the thing about him, right? There was a flair. Anytime he got the ball, people were excited. I think back to the punt return for the touchdown against Pittsburgh. If UCF comes back and wins that game, I think that's an iconic punt return play that maybe we even remember even more. Uh, right? There was just something. Like, I remember we spent a ton of episodes together talking about getting him the ball more just because that was he, things, he made things happen in space. And it just felt like sometimes they just weren't, and it, it was too bad because there were so many things he could do. And uh, yeah, that punt return is so nuts. That punt return play, people should go back and look at it. Like he tries to point out his blockers, but then it's too fast, so he just outruns the blockers regardless. Ducks under the punter as if he's limboing under the punter, spins out of another tackle and scores a touchdown from eight yards away. It's incredible. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's just he, he did so much. He was a punt returner. He was a receiver, a runner. And then I, I talked about how, you know, Anthony Tucker, the running backs coach uh, for the past few years before 2021, had said he could have played corner. He could have played nickel. He knew offensive line assignments. He knew quarterback reads. He was the smartest player on that offense, you know, during Josh Heupel's reign here. Um, he could do it all. He knew it all. Um, he was, you know, probably the most integral part of that, of that entire offense. thing I remember, and I had some interaction with him, I will never forget, my conversation with him on media day 2018 we actually ran that interview back then on on this podcast uh and the thing that struck me about him and you had more interaction so i think you could agree there was such a joy of him talking football he just enjoyed talking he talked about how he loved the fact that he was kind of used as this versatile guy as this kind of a utility guy where he would attend wide receiver meetings and running back meetings but then he also enjoyed the fact that he got to hang out with them off the field, go to bowling, go to movies together. Mm-hmm. He was a glue guy, wasn't he, in this locker room, I think, from a genuine guy. Like you said, nobody, everybody liked Otis. Yeah, and I think, you know, he's a running back at heart, but he really enjoyed just being on the field and, and showcasing how many ways he could beat you. Uh, you know, talking to Otis was fun because, Eric, you know, you've been in this game long enough, too, that there are players that, that are so tight with the media that are, are very sort of wooden. They don't want to say anything. Um, and you know, like, they're not going to be a great interview. And Otis was not, never like that. Otis was always very relaxed uh, and pretty and pretty brutally honest at times. I tried to mention that a few times in the article. Um, but, like, sometimes he would take little jabs and, 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 and uh, say things that maybe, you know, the SIDs may not love for him to say. But that was Otis. He was pretty honest. He was pretty open. He was always a great guy to talk to. Very gracious with his time, never really wanted to rush you. Just um, really, really, you know, and, and as we're hearing more testimonials from his teammates, you know, it just, it, it, it really goes to show, like, it's not just the way he, we, with, that we reacted with him, we interacted with him or how he was around us. It was like that around everybody. He was just a really great guy to be around, according to everyone we've heard from so far. And he believed it himself. There was that confidence, you know. And I, I remember he told me he looked up to guys like Percy Harvin, who played similar role, you know, at the wide out, but could run at the running back, could be a returner. He had guys he was looking up and, you know, well, maybe people on the outside's like, well, you're too small or you're too this. He always believed in himself and in his abilities, 
which got him obviously with the LA Rams on the practice squad. Sure. And actually, you know, he, he really cried Adrian Killens too, with sort of like, because those two guys, uh, you know, similar body types, not exactly the same, but similar body types, you know, uh, of them sort of challenging each other to prove to both of each, both of them that they could do it at this level. These were two guys, two, two boys really who grew up, knew each other from the age of, uh, I believe eight years old running track in Florida and they, you know, they come to this program and I think they both had a similar chip on his shoulder. Or just talked a lot about how Adrian really motivated him, uh, you know, to, to prove that just because I'm really undersized and I don't have a lot of weight on me, like, uh, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to beat you. And, I, you know, you can say this as well, Eric. Otis was really hard to tackle. He's a really, really tough runner. He bounced off a lot of guys. He had a really strong lower body. He had great balance. Um, he was not a guy who, you know, was 175 pounds. You're right. And and really, it was just so uh, it was so elusive. And but yet you could just sense, you know, you mentioned he was pretty honest. He would be sometimes too honest on some things he would say. But I kind of felt like the players respected him. Right. Like he was one of those guys that could speak up and they would listen. I felt like and, and I think that he just had that genuine respect from everybody. He was real. I mean, he was just real. Right? And you know, I remember after the pit loss in 2019, he just goes up there and we ask him, like, how are you feeling? Because it was the end up snapped the win streak. And he goes, I can't explain it. I'm a sore loser. I hate losing. We're pissed. And it's like, you know, like, yo, that's what we want. Not this, like, well, we didn't play well today and execution. Like, no, like, give me give me what you're thinking. And he always told you that. Um, and we appreciated that, certainly in our business. But that's what he was off the field, on the field, didn't matter. He was a real guy. He, he You know, whatever you, what, what you saw is what you got, you know, so – and I think that's why he related to the fans. And I think that's why the fans, this has been a tough week because I think there's a connection there that fa- fans like that, right? They, they could just connect with a player like him from the field. And 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 he had a way, he's one of those guys too. And even though he's playing, he kind of connected with you. Like if you were watching him in the stadium, whether he did this number two peace sign or things, he had a way just in, in his own way to kind of connect with the fans while he's playing. And I think there was that bond, uh, that, that he had and it was such it, it's just so unique I mean Josh Hypo I mean so many people have come on out on social media and talked about him uh in droves Josh Hypo said uh, saddened he was saddened and stunned by the passing it was t- he was a tough gritty fun and full of laughter uh he made such a positive impact on our university the community and our locker room I think that's well said right I mean that's the best description of him is he was a positive impact in so many levels yeah, it sums it up pretty well. He did it. And, that, and, and yeah, it helps that he was really productive on the field, too, because, you know, usually there are lots of guys like that on every team. But, you know, he was also immensely talented and had a lot of just like, you know, create a lot of seminal moments for UCF football program. Uh, and that's, you know, you know, this has been a terrible couple of days. And and, I, you know, it, it's at times like this. And I think we're doing it right now where. You know, as as tough as this is, and as angry as I am, and, and as much as I just want to like sob, it really helps to just think back of, of what good he has done to bring joy into our lives, and that we should be grateful for the joy that Otis Anderson gave us because it was short it was short lived, but it, it will live on for for a long long time. Yeah, you made a great point in your article, and I think it's and I agree with this one hundred percent. I mean, it's always hard to deal with a tragedy like this and let alone 23 years like that's just it's just it's just you can't I can't even I still can't comprehend that however if there is any positive or any way to kind of help is 
there's a lot of people that live a long time, longer, like 60, 70, 80 years, that didn't have the impact that he did in such a short period of time. That's really a remarkable thing that he's made, he's made an impact. Like, he's going to live forever. People are going to remember. He's going to be a part of that UCF 2017 team. And mm-hmm. the highlights will live there forever. We've seen UCF obviously put some clips. There's photos. Uh, our staff at Black Eagle Better have photos. I mean, he's going to live forever in that way. If, if So I'm not saying that that obviously it, it does not make it any easier. But uh, that's impressive for a young man, 23 years, to make an impact like that. Yeah, and I just hope it brings comfort to those who, you know, as, you know, as fans and as, as people who love this program and, 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 and love it and respect it, Otis, for those who are mourning right now to be comforted by the fact that, you know, we still have all of this, that even though I hate that it's all gone, that there was so much to look back on and smile. And, and we could, we could we'll always talk about it and reminisce and, and think about like, man, remember that play? He's so good. He did this so well. Remember this, remember that? And like, there's, again, we, you know, there's just so much that I could have, I could have listed. He just, he made such an, an immense impact in a short amount of time with a lot of people. And um, yeah, it never forgotten. Throughout the show, we'll have our staffs, uh, Andrew Glukoff, Kyle Nash, uh, Bryson. They're also going to share their thoughts. One of the things we'll do in honoring Otis, each person will have two thoughts, two final thoughts uh, that they will remember about Otis. I'll start with you, Brian, here to, as we here on the, this note. Yeah, obviously the two, that's the thing that I remember is the piece, the two number, the showman, if you will. What are two things you're going to remember about Otis uh, for the rest of your life as somebody who covered him up close, talked to him, uh, you know, and covered his entire UCF career and, you know, and basically sell him up close? Yeah, so I think actually for us all go like one on-field and one off-field. The on-field thing is always, is, is for me, even though it may not be the most consequential play in use of his, you know, use of history, even the most consequential play that he had. I think it's the screen pass in 2017 uh, that, that set up, that was, you know, you know, was then kind of usurped by a USF touchdown and then set up the Mike Hughes touchdown. That, at that moment, it's a true freshman, by the way. It's a true freshman, by the way. At that moment, uh, the state, that ground shook on that stadium, uh, underneath, that, underneath that stadium at that moment. Uh, that is something that I will never forget on the field, I think off the field, again, the guy was so real, you know, and, and, and uh, I mentioned in the article, he would say these things that he knew maybe he shouldn't say a little bit and he would get a little shine in his eye and get that little smile. And the smile was, was highlighted, was sort of emblazoned because he would always wear a mouth. He would always would, would wear, wear like a grill, like gold or, or stripe. And so like, he's just shining from like eye to tooth. And I'll never forget that. He just, he was, you know, a guy who I think that that's, that look, you know, is how I remember him, like smiling and shining brightly. It's a great word there. And I remember, I'll never forget, he told me he came to UCF because he wanted to make a difference. He wanted to change, you know, at the time, you know, UCF had kind of struggled, had the winless season at 15. They had the six win year under first year Scott Frost. He said, want to make an impact, a difference. And boy, (laughs) uh, he did that and, and then some. Uh, in so many levels we will have a regular show of black and gold better there's a lot of ucf news to talk about but obviously we will be thinking of otis not only uh, this episode for for a long time we'll be thinking for otis this show uh, will be tribute to him and uh, our thoughts and condolences to otis and his his family on this tragedy otis anders 23 years old
This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez. And welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon out uh, this week on the episode. He uh, had a successful back surgery. He's recovering. You will hear from Jeff later in the show. He interviewed UCF Volleyball head coach Todd Dagenet. Of course, UCF Volleyball out in Los Angeles in the NCAA tournament. They, he, he, that interview was recorded on Monday. You'll hear that uh, interview on this show. Plus, Kyle Nash will join us later. We'll talk UCF basketball as our reasons for concern following UCF's back-to-back losses to Oklahoma and Auburn. Bryson Turner will join us. He'll break. We'll break down the volleyball uh, tournament aspirations as well as softball coming out with a schedule uh, as well. Of course, you can follow us on all of the social media platforms, uh, Twitter and on Facebook. You can like us as well as our YouTube page. Subscribe there. And, of course, blackandgoldbetterit.com. And, uh, of course, podcast. Make sure you uh, give us a rate the review. Give us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Joining me right now is our good friend, Andrew Glukoff, to talk some football and be- <laughs> Drew, there's been a lot of football news over the last short week. So we're going to kind of scan through some of these big topics because a lot of UCF football news have come out. Let's kind of go backwards here first. Uh, Black Friday, UCF beat South Florida 17-13 with a dramatic finish at the end where South Florida drives. And, of course, we've seen the play by now, the sack, the clock run out, the whole the shebang with that. UCF finishes the regular season 8-4. and four. We are recording this segment at 9.05 a.m. Eastern on Thursday. As of this uh, segment being recorded, we do not know yet the bowl uh, aspirations of UCF. In fact, you and I were just talking off the air. We don't know about a lot of bowl games at this hour, which is kind of strange. So I guess let's first start. Give me your final thoughts now that you have had a few days to think about. What are you going to think about when you think back you were there on the 2021 edition of Black Friday? Well, it was definitely a, a stolen game by, by UCF because uh, they got out offensed. Uh, UCF had uh, a few uh, chunk plays. USF had a few chunk plays. But but overall, I, UCF's offense struggled, struggled a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you take away some some big gains. You know, Johnny Richardson, eight carries, 94 yards, but he had a 42-yarder. So that's that's almost half a yardage right there. So, I mean, you, but that's what that's what UCF always brought to the table this year, you know, because this is this is not what we're used to seeing, you know, prior to the Louisville game uh, where, where we see a lot of little things and then some chunk stuff when it finally opens up. Uh, offensive line struggled, you know, struggled badly in this game. And uh, part of it was, as Coach Melzon said, you know, defensive coordinator let go there was very little film to really know what they were going to bring and the defense brought some some wrinkles because you had a different guy running the show actually had two guys running the show uh and the the team struggled to adapt to it it's yeah that's why if you actually look they 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 really fell flat especially in the second half it was kind of hold on for dear life there was a lot of points left on the board you know, miss kicks and whatnot, you know, that that's always been something that's haunted UCF, but it really came to came home on this one because uh, you were 
three yards away from losing this game. Uh, refs got the call right though at the very end with the sack and, and the running out of the clock, correct call, you know, the, the 10 second runoff and they would not have been able to spike the ball with two seconds left. We've already found that out. That's, that's a no, no uh, happened in a Miami game, not too long prior. Uh, but I mean, this was definitely an escape win, but you know, and Jeff Sharon brought, uh, made a very valid point with, with rivalry games. You know, you think, you know, you can go 10 and, you know, 11 and one, but if that one loss is against your rival, forget about it. And if you have only one win, it's going to be that rival game. That's the one you want. And weird things happen during rivalry games. It doesn't matter how you, you did the rest of the season. It's kind of like the reset buttons hit and it, everything else just doesn't matter. Yeah. We saw it in 2020, you know, when, uh, when a bad South Florida team played like a world beater and went to a shootout with UCF. And of course, UCF came out on the good side, uh, but I mean, weird things happen during rivalry games. So this was no different, but UCF held on for dear life. They took care of business and have officially taken the series lead seven to six over those guys in West Central Florida. The game, by the way, was tuned in, uh, was watched by uh, an estimate 711,000 uh, TV viewers on ESPN. That's according to Cable uh, Show That's Buzz Daily. Good. Sli- it's slightly up. It's up from last season's game, uh, down from 2019 and 20, you know, 2017 to 2019. It's all way down from that, but up from last season. Well, uh, game which did under six hundred thousand. This, this wasn't a good game. I mean, so no. I, I mean, I'll, I'll take that viewership any day. I, this this was a boring game to watch. Not a good it, well, it, yeah, yeah, not a really good. It, game it was sloppy on both sides, and uh, both defenses played very well. Um, both defenses had an outstanding game, uh, but it, it just it wasn't an exciting game from the standpoint of outside the fan bases. Obviously, you see fans and, and South Florida fans, they'll tune in to watch. But for the casual, this was not an exciting game. The offenses were, were, were pretty sloppy. And, uh, you know, that can turn a lot of people off. Uh, so I, I, I'm very thrilled that over 700,000 tuned in to watch this game, you know, take the, the ratings and run. You know, could that be a, a positive fallout that maybe some – some casuals from, you know, soon to be conference mates might have watched, you know, hard to say. Uh, but, you know, UCF's name's out there. You know, they're, they're moving up, you know, you know, to the, that deluxe apartment in the sky. Uh, so, I mean, take it for what it is. You know, it's a win. It was an ugly win. Good amount of people watched it. They watched an ugly win. But, hey, UCF 8-4, and four, who would have thought? This would have happened after they opened three and three. I mean, they went five and one to close the season. Uh, I believe we talked about it in a previous show that that was really the best case scenario because we we did not think UCF had really much of a chance at that point against SMU and and, and they got torched. Yeah, we said that right after the in the night shift edition after the Cincinnati blowout loss. Yeah, that was what we were hoping for, eight and four. Right, and that was best case scenario really. And look what happened. You know, it may not have been pretty, but they found a way to win. Uh, this team, this team doesn't quit. They've got some moxie. Uh, you know, they they seem to to dig in when it when it really counts and hold the line, and and come up. You know, with with these gutsy wins, they're 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 not pretty. Uh, they they may take a few years off your life, but hey, uh, they don't care how many points you scored or how many yards you didn't get. 
in the win loss record, all they see are the number of W's and the number of L's. So eight and four, man, that what a what a year. Eight and four. Now, of course, the big news comes on Saturday after the Black Friday game. In fact, it was during the UCF Oklahoma basketball game. Dylan Gabriel announces he's entering the transfer portal and he is departing. Now, we're not going to dive into that whole deal. We did a very special night shift, Andrew and I, as well as Kyle Nash. We did an hour and a half on this topic on Saturday. It's on the same podcast feeds. If you're a podcast, more of a preference of a just let rather listen and watch the episode, you could do that on our podcast feed. I encourage you to do that. It was really strong. We got a lot of feedback and a lot of questions there. You could also watch it on our YouTube subscribe. So we're not going to dive into the whole Dylan drama once again because we just did an hour and a half, and I would rather you tune into that. However, I do want to ask you this, Drew, because uh, this is a hot topic. I was on the Mark Moses show this week. I was on uh, up in Melbourne, and I was asked about this. I was on the beat of sports in Orlando with Mike Tuck filling in for Mark Daniels, who was at with UCF basketball. And I was asked the same question about Dylan Gabriel and why. And obviously, this is all focused about Gus's offense. And even Dylan's uh, dads told Matt Michelle, the Orlando Sentinel, they didn't think they fit the system and, and all that. And I want you to address this because you, this has been a topic you have talked about really since Gus arrived. And that is Dylan Gabriel and the Gus system in the scheme. How much of this is overblown? How much of this is a cop-out? How much of this is true? Because, and let's be real, let's be honest with the audience, this won't be the last player that's going to be into the transfer portal. This is the new wave of college athletics. But your thoughts on the scrutiny here, where it's like the, 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 the Gabriel camp saying, hey, you know, this is not a good fit for us. It's one of the reasons. Are you buying this? I'm not. Uh, I'm not really buying it at all. Uh, I, I think that it's definitely a cop-out. Because, I mean, if you look, you know, one of the things that dogged Dylan Gabriel is the fact he was viewed as a system quarterback, you know, just a guy who just throws the ball deep and, and guys come and speed down the field and get it. Well, you need fast receivers for that. Uh, and when you had fast defensive backs who took, who were able to help shut things down, things didn't go so well. But if you look at his stats, uh, they didn't really drop off all that much. Yeah, the uh, Louisville game was rough. Louisville's defense was pretty good, uh, you know, they, he, you know, he only had 188 yards, which was the second low, which was the lowest of any start that he had. Uh, it was the only time as a, as a starter that he had under 200 yards passing. You know what? Bad games do happen. I'm still through for three touchdowns, but each game above that was 300 yards. And, you know, against Bethune Cookman, you know, he was pulled later in the game when it wasn't, didn't matter. So I, it's, if he's looking for inflated stats, so I, I don't buy that, you know, the, the system works with the players involved and the difference is this is a much more cerebral system uh, require. It's, it's not as simple as chuck ball downfield, let receiver catch, which is really what the Josh Heupel system was all about. Uh, it worked because you had the talent to support it, but it was not a very complicated system. Uh, Gus Malzahn has a much more complicated system. And that's partially why a Mikey Kane struggled really badly early on is, you know, he just, it takes time to kind of grasp things, especially as a true freshman. So I, I'm not buying it, but you know, I, I just want to hit, hit this one little thing. As far as 2022 2021 goes, nothing's changed. He wasn't playing yesterday. He wasn't playing today and he's not playing tomorrow. So in the end, nothing really changes. The difference is it's no longer part, you know, the what ifs gone. So it actually may take some stress off. 
but it opens doors for 2022 as far as well can you see i take advantage of the, the, the transfer portal uh there's guys out there and uh there there's you know different coaches have different relationships uh, you know something could come come down the pipeline and you know ucf could be you know could land someone with, with talent that fits the system uh, but I, I'm not buying it. If if Dylan Gabriel wanted to, he could have fit the system. The system could have worked to fit him. Uh, you know, it's not a it's not a you know, oh, it's two sizes too small. I can't change it. No, there's elastic involved, and, and there is give. So no, I'm selling. Is there any concerns you have about Gus's offensive system at all? Because uh, some people are are just concerned in general. They're used to the UC fast and all that. You didn't get to see this. Gus did address this in the post game in South Florida, saying to be patient because we don't have all the bells and whistles. Do you have any concerns about Gus's system working uh, in twenty twenty two or beyond? Well, I always tell tell people to give coaches three years. It gives them a chance to get their their players in that that fit the way they want it. You know, right now you're, you're working largely with someone else's team. So, you know, this was a team that went six and four last year. You know, it's, it had a lot of, lot of uh, bad spots that needed working on. And while there has been improvement, it was not an overnight fix. And it's still taking time to, to address. So, you know, I'm, I'm not concerned at this point. I mean, the only concern you could actually have is if you go historically and, and Gus's issues with quarterback development, um, you know, part of that is really, you know, more recruiting. And then you had politics at Auburn kind of forcing his hand into certain things, uh, which people don't talk about. There was a lot of booster manipulation and meddling within the Auburn system that that really hindered a lot of things, you know, a lot of external pressure. He doesn't have that at UCF. And, and I think that'll make it a little bit easier to kind of install things and, and put things the way he wants. Remember, true freshman. And, and, you know, a bit of a patchwork on, on defense yielded an eight and four record. And, you know, a couple of those losses were really close losses, you know, Louisville, Navy, those were close losses that could have gone, you know, either way. That's, those are 50, 50 games. So I, you're, you're talking about a team that could have gone 10 and two with, with, with a lot of patchwork on, involved, uh, you know, it shows that not only are they, starting to bring in guys that are helping fit like some of the transfers you're also starting to bring out the talent that's within the team that you have as well as uh, adapting to the roster that you have which you know that that's an important part of, of coaching is you know you you have a plate of stuff now arrange it make it work yeah i, I would agree with that and again uh let's see what happens when he gets his off you know his personnel in and I think you'll have a better feel for the offense uh, moving forward. Plus, I think it helped the defense. I think there was better complementary football defense improved. Uh, I just don't think you can sustain winning 45, 42 games on a yearly basis. I think in the long run, this team will be a better all-around football team uh, overall. But you just got to get the better personnel. Well, and yeah, because I mean, you look at the depth. The, yeah. the depth wasn't there. And you, you had defensive linemen playing defensive end to start the season. I mean, that, that shows that you already had depth issues. Uh, you had a very thin linebacking core that got thinner as the year went on. The, the amount of injuries was ridiculous. But, you know, I got to credit the team and the staff. They didn't quit. They didn't quit at all. No, I, I agree with you on that aspect that I, I think this roster's 
flaws were exposed based off the injuries. And I think uh, they have to address it. And I'm not sure you could just quick fix this over one year because next year I think they're going to be a pretty young roster. I think you're going to see a lot of new faces uh, in, from that regard. And, it, you know, we'll see how that goes. And that goes hand in hand with the schedule. The schedule came out for 2022. The big story there is UCF will have nine of the 12 games will be played in the state of Florida, which uh, will include road games at, at FAU and then at South Florida, which what could be and is scheduled to be right now more than likely the final game in the Warren I-4 history uh, between those two programs. Uh, you got Louisville coming in. You've got Georgia Tech coming in. What stood out to you about the 2022 schedule that, that came out? Well, I, you know, UCF has always been dogged for, for scheduling issues. Uh, this is the best schedule UCF's had in a long time. Uh, you know, you, you still have talented teams in Houston, SMU, and, and potentially Cincinnati. We're not quite sure how that team's going to shape up after, after the offseason. Uh, but I, there's, there's some talented squads there. And, you know, while Georgia Tech not doing so hot, you know, losing, uh, losing their star running back Gibbs to the transfer portal this week. Uh, still, there's still some talent there that just hadn't quite figured it out. And, you know, you, you got a revenge game against Louisville on the calendar. I mean, all, all things kind of, kind of shape up. Hey, they, 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 they value power five matchups, even against bad teams. They, they value, well, you've got two on the schedule. It's about the best you can do. Uh, all things considered. And, and then diving out of the FIU series made a lot of sense, especially because the first one was canceled and it didn't look like it was going to be rescheduled. You know, get that FCS game in there, allow it to be a tune-up because as you said, there's probably going to be a lot of new faces, a lot of adjustments. That's where that, that FCS game comes into handy. Uh, you can use it to, to improve yourself, to chess and try new things, but it's not a scrimmage, Eric. It's not a scrimmage. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Uh, and what could be the final conference schedule in the American UCF will host Cincinnati SMU Navy temple. They will travel to East Carolina, Memphis, Tulane and South Florida. I think anybody would admit the one thing we will miss about the American is going to cities like Memphis and Tulane. Uh, we will both, miss that. Both that a would... lot of fun. I've been to both, uh, yep. both, both cities, uh, New Orleans and, and Memphis, uh, during different times in my uh, in my collegiate and post collegiate careers, uh, a lot of fun at both both cities. Uh, we'll definitely miss that. Um, you know, the the little apple doesn't you know is is not a bad city, but does not hold a candle to to Nolens. I mean, I mean, yeah. can we honestly compare? No, no, that that's gonna be a little tricky there. I mean, now, Provo versus you know Memphis. Ooh. Well, hopefully, maybe Memphis will join in a few years. We'll get that trip back uh, down the road in the Big 12. <laughs> would be nice. Wouldn't yeah. it? Um, now, the big question now moving forward is going to be, where is UCF's next game going to be played? We don't know. Again, we're recording this at 9 a.m. Eastern on Thursday. So by the time you listen to this, maybe we will have the answers. And then maybe we'll have to do a special live show to break it down, where UCF's play. But as of now, we don't know the bowl game. And perhaps part of that is because of the Cincinnati factor. We don't know if Cincinnati will make the playoff or not. They are ranked number four in this week's college football playoff uh, rankings. They will play Houston for the conference championship game. 
Two things on this, uh, Drew. Number one, I want to ask you this question because I've sensed there's a divide among UCF fans. There are some that are rooting against Cincinnati to make the playoff because they don't want, they feel that they should have been the first team back in 2017 to be in. They don't think, they don't want Cincinnati to get all the glory. Plus, uh, they uh, they just don't want from a recruiting, they believe that's a recruiting advantage for Cincinnati to have over UCF going into the Big 12 together, that Cincinnati makes the playoffs and UCF doesn't. There are others that say, no, we're for it, because from a business standpoint, it makes sense. Cincinnati is stronger. If Houston's strong and UCF strong going to the Big 12, that's all good for all parties. Plus, if Cincinnati makes the playoff, that's more money for the American, which means more money for UCF. Uh, Cincinnati's gotten some good news. They kind of dodged a bullet this week. Luke Fickle... You know, when Notre Dame, Brian Kelly shocked everybody and left Notre Dame for LSU, a lot of people thought maybe Luke Fickle goes to Cincinnati. Instead, Notre Dame will promote Marcus Freeman, their defense coordinator, the former Cincinnati defense coordinator. He will be the new head coach at Notre Dame. So Luke Fickle, once again, will stay at Cincinnati. Where do you stand on this whole thing? Is it good? If you're UCF a fan on Saturday, are you rooting for Cincinnati or are you rooting against them? Oh, I'm 120% rooting for them. Uh, this 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 isn't even close. Uh, rooting against them is, is is at this point just petty. Uh, it's it's just it's petty and jealousy. Uh, but rooting for them is good for the American in the short term. While UCF still a member, it's good for the Big Twelve because not you know you have a a television contract negotiation coming up that's going to be big, and we're talking not not just going from two to seven million dollars. We're talking you know, perhaps 15 to 20. We're, we're talking a much bigger range of a lot more dollars at, at stake here uh, for a long, for the long haul. You know, this isn't going to be a case of, you know, when UCF got the renewal uh, in 2019, you know, for, for the television deal, they were still looking to try to get out. Well, once they're in the big 12, they're, they're not going to be looking anywhere. There's really, cause there's nowhere to go. You know, they've, they've gotten into that, that, that P5, uh, conference and and there's you know the, the ACC is not doing anything so I mean they're not that's going to be their home so you you want to have the most beneficial stuff going on and you know to have a team in the playoffs it goes a long way you know the fact that Oklahoma and Texas are not in the conference championship game is good for the Big 12 you know because yeah for at this point we as fans got to be thinking ahead towards, you know, the 2023 and beyond crew, you know, the ones that are the, the remaining eight and the new four. Uh, I, I don't buy it at all into, you know, Oh, I want them to lose. Cause you know, we should have been first. Well, you know, you know, stop crying over spill milk. It's over. It's, it's years over. It's done. Move on. Uh, you know, you have, you have an eight, eight win team here who needs your support. And you know what? You have a conference that needs support. And anything that can boost their profile, you need it because the Big 12 is is being dogged, uh, this new Big 12, as, oh, they're not really a power conference. You know, they're just, you're just there. Well, you know, you know how you prove otherwise? You do stuff like this. So you need Cincinnati to really step up and, and prove the doubters wrong. You know, get in the, in the top four. Heck, win a semifinal game. You know, go, go, go win, go win a title. You know, um, imagine the positive vibes and, and, and notoriety that comes to the new big 12. If you can say, Hey, we got a team that just won a national title a couple of years ago. And they're on, they're, they're part of us now that that goes a long way. You know, 
we, we got to stop thinking just in the little bubble uh, of just of, of UCF fandom and think big picture here. I guarantee you the, uh, the, the front office administration at UCF wants Cincinnati to win. They want the money in the short term. They want the potential more money in the long term. And Cincinnati would bring both of those to the table if they want, especially now that Luke Fickle's not going anywhere. And, and on the side, has there been any other coaching rise that has been as fast as Marcus Freeman, who didn't even start coaching until 2010, and now he's going to be the head coach of Notre Dame? I mean, it's wow. Fantastic. And I love the hire. I love Jack Swarbrick acting quickly. Uh, I like the move. I like the move. I think Notre Dame is going to be just fine. I've always liked Marcus Freeman. I thought he did a great job here at Cincinnati defensively. We saw him up close, and uh, I think it was a great move. And, uh, you know, I, I do. I, I think that's a great move. And I, I agree. With, I, I, that's a great point you made about the future TV contract. I think that is significant that UCF, Cincinnati, and Houston are strong when you get into your TV negotiations. You don't want a bunch of, you know, struggling programs in there at that timing. Timing every, is everything. So I agree with you 100%. Plus, you know, we're, we've done over 300 episodes here of the Banneret, and me and one of the most constant arguments me and Jeff have had about uh, is, can a group of five team get into the playoff? I've said yes. He's said no. Here we are, Cincinnati, possibly a win away from making the playoffs, and I get to shut a lot of people up. By yeah, they're, tap, they're tapping on that glass ceiling. It, it's yeah. you know, Is it going to break or is it going to hold? Probably. We'll find, we'll find I, out Sunday. It's going to be. I think it's going to be a pretty dramatic Saturday, and I think it'll be very fascinating Sunday. Now, where this also affects UCF potentially is the bowl scenarios. You and I wrote our, la- our latest bowl predictions. It's on blackygobenerate.com. I've got them going to Gasparilla. You've still got them going to Birmingham. There's been some rumors that. Fenway is still in the mix for UCF. There's some rumors that the bowl, uh, the Gasparilla is trying to make UCF in Florida, but Florida, I know this is a shock to some in our audience, doesn't want to prefer would not to play UCF. I know that we've heard that before. Uh, there's been some rumors <laughs> that UCF, if they play Gasparilla, will not be against Florida. It could be a South Carolina or somebody else from the SEC. Just kind of quick thoughts here, because I know we're both surprised we don't know as of this hour where they're going. We thought this would be out by now, but maybe not. Maybe we wait till the weekend, maybe not. Where, what, what's your thoughts here on the UCF Bowl destination? Well, I mean, it's really going to be one of those three. Uh, and I think part of it is resting on what happens with, with Saturday. Uh, but, you know, Houston being lower ranked than uh, San Diego State, you know, there's a question of could San Diego State jump in and become the, the New Year's Six representative of the G5? I think Houston will jump San Diego State should they beat Cincinnati. You know, hey, you just beat the top four team. Uh, you're going to bump up because they're only three spots apart from each other. And San Diego State's playing Utah State. So you're not getting the nearly the uh, the strength of victory there. So I think it's winner take all of getting into the New Year's Six, which is a little bit of a surprise why things haven't quite shuffled out the way they have. But I guess I guess there's still that that concern of things kind of going sideways, say, Houston wins a, a squeaker and San Diego State, you know, does a does a Ohio State wins 59 nothing. Uh, you know, maybe enough to to hold off a, a cougar rally, and thus the, the Aztecs would, would take the spot. And then you have to reshuffle your whole bowl lineup. I but the two that were announced made a lot of sense. Uh, Memphis to Hawaii, that one made a lot of sense. Uh, once they lost to East Carolina, they were pretty much locked into that one. And then East Carolina. You know, staying on the eastern seaboard, 
going to Myrtle Beach also made perfect sense uh, at, at this point. Now you'd think that UCF to, to Gasparilla would be would would be very logical, but a lot of it's also the hook, you know, the story. You're talking low to mid tier bowls. You need something that that sells, and you, you're looking at at six and six teams from the from the SEC or the ACC, which are really what you're going to end up facing. You know, that's why I picked Birmingham against Auburn. Um, massive story right there. You you got a hook immediately. Auburn finishing six and six despite the close loss against Alabama in the Iron Bowl. Again, rivalry game. Strange things happen. Uh, you know, it becomes the best. That's actually the best story game right there. You know, UCF Florida. Yeah, it's great for UCF fans, but no one else really cares. Uh, you know, there, there's no real hook to it. And, and you know, I'm a little surprised Florida is so adverse to this game. Uh, Talent-wise, uh, they they have a better they have better talent than UCF at this point. They just have nothing that holds it together. Well, UCF has less talent, but is much more of a cohesive unit. Uh, I go back to the Manhattan Jaspers over the Florida Gators in the NCAA tournament. Maybe that's why they're afraid because, uh, you know, uh, we over me do, does, you know, carry, carry some difference. But you're right. You know, it could be a South Carolina, a Missouri. Uh, I don't think Tennessee is going to – I think they'll end up in a higher bowl uh, since they've ended up with, with a seventh win over, over Vanderbilt. But, you know, it's all about it's all about the sell. You know, I think Boston College will be in the Fenway Bowl against anyone. And, and you know, doesn't matter. SMU, Houston, uh, UCF, Fenway. There, there's no selling point to that. The only selling point is, hey, the local team's playing there. But I think I think there's room here for that UCF Auburn game in Birmingham. You've got a brand new stadium. Birmingham is the center of the college football universe for some reason. And, you know. That's a local game for the Tigers. It's a, and, and while it's not, it's a what, 30, 35,000 seat stadium. So you don't have to worry about it over, you know, you know, you're not going to get a huge sellout on a six and six Auburn team, but people will come. And, and so it's, as opposed to, you know, 60,000 plus in Tampa with a six and six SEC team, you can fill a 35,000 seat stadium with a six and six SEC team that, you know, they're, even though they're both in their own local state, uh, I just think it's a better game. It's a better matchup. You know, it's not that far away. Uh, it's a higher profile game. You know, it's not a pre-Christmas game. Uh, those, those tend to be looked down upon as kind of the, the weaker bowls. You know, it's uh, December 28th. Uh, I, I would I would be thrilled if, if UCF ended up in Birmingham. We shall see. We will find out soon where UCF's destination is to conclude this first season of Gus Melzahn. If it'll be Gasparilla, will it be Birmingham or Fenway? That's probably going to be one of those three bowl games. Coming up on the Black and Gold Banneret, Jeff Sharon's interview with Todd Dagenet's UCF in the NCAA tournament in Los Angeles. We'll hear from Coach Dagenet and his thoughts on that. Plus, Kyle Nash will join us later to talk about UCF men's basketball. There's some concerns following the Oklahoma and Auburn loss. That's all coming up on the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. But before we do that, obviously, as we mentioned at the cold uh, open here with Brian Murphy, we are tribute. Uh, this trip, this show is a tribute to Otis Anderson. And one of the things we'll do uh, on this show is give everybody a chance to speak about Otis Anderson. And Drew, I know you were you wanted to speak about Otis, so. Give me your two thoughts, because obviously when I think of Otis, we think of that two-piece sign. So one of the things we'll do with the rest of the staff, give me your two thoughts that jumps to mind uh, when you think of Otis Anderson. 
Well, I remember his freshman year for the Peach Bowl. He was one of the guys in the in the interview in the group interviews. And uh, while most fan, well, most fans, most media left to follow wherever Mackenzie Milton went, because uh, he he was in a different breakout session. I stayed and and listened to to Otis and and well, Wyatt Miller and and some other players. I think Trey Quan was one. I think Jordan Aikens was maybe the other one. But you know, he was a freshman. And I asked a, a a question of him, and I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, uh, dealing with being young and and handling you know the spotlight. And, and he gave this very mature, collected response that you know you don't expect it from from a freshman, a true freshman. Uh, he came. He definitely came off as older, you know, wiser than his years. Uh, definitely older than he appeared. Uh, very poised and and very polite. And, you know, I, I love the fact that that answer actually made his highlight reel from that season, uh, which, you know, made me feel kind of good too. But, you know, you look at the fan interactions that he's had. I, he, he's, he was just class all around in, in a good way. You know, it was just a, a, a nice, humble kid uh, who, who had the world in front of him. And, you know, you, you become a fan favorite not only by excelling on the field, but excelling off the field and personality goes a long way. You know, you, you gain team favorites that way by, by, by guys who interact with the, with the masses, you know, he's not too, you know, not too, his ego wasn't too big to, to get away from taking pictures with fans. I mean, he was everywhere. You know, if a fan wanted a picture, he was in for it. Uh, you know, you know, that was, it's, you know, very, very refreshing to see, you know, you know, these young, young players and, and especially Otis, uh, you know, doing this stuff, you know, they don't have to spend time with the fans. You know, they can do the minimum and just get away, but he, he wasn't about the minimum, you know, there was nothing minimum about him. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, we've been robbed of, of a treasure of a person. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. It's enraging when you think about the, the circumstances behind it. And obviously we have to now wait and see how the system works out, but, you know, we, we lost a treasure and, you know, you don't know how the team or, or the fans are going to move on from this, but, uh, you know, he's touched a lot of people, you know, Rock'em socks, put 500 uh, pairs of socks that they made specifically for him with his name on it and, and his deuces sign and we're donating the proceeds to his mother uh, who, who did, you know, survive with, with, you know, minimal injuries, uh, but she, she's going to make it. Uh, they sold out and according to Jason Beattie, the Orlando Sentinel in 13 hours. So I mean, that was 500 pairs right there. Maybe it'll do another run. Uh, but I mean, that, that just shows how much the fans and the world care about him. You know, uh, you know, they've got GoFundMe's going on to to donate money to his mom to help, you know, with costs and everything, uh, and and they've raised thousands of dollars. It, it just shows the the love that that you know that Night Nation has for for Otis, and you know you've had other teams, you know, fans from South Florida, uh, the Los Angeles Rams, uh, you know, other other schools coming out and saying, hey, you know, we we support. UCF and their fans right now because they're they're going through a tough spot. You know, this is hard to reconcile. You know, when you think about what happened and why, it's very hard to reconcile. 
and and I think that's taken a larger emotional toll on on the general public, just because it's it's hard to understand what would drive someone to do what they did, and, and the thought process that goes with it. And, and I'm sure we'll learn more as the as the system works, but it's it's really hard to process and it's really hard to reconcile and and rationalize because it, it doesn't come off as rational at all. And, and, and that creates a lot more mental and emotional anguish that needs to go somewhere. You know, you know internalizing is not a good thing. Uh, it's, it's very damaging. So, you know, a lot of fans are, are, are talking online. Uh, you know, there's, there was a memorial set up uh, in the stadium and, and a few people went to it, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the two yard line. Uh, there's been fundraising, you know, it, it gives fans and the general public a way of doing something to try and, and give themselves a, a feeling of peace. Because uh, you know anyone who's a parent, you know myself included, uh, th this hits harder because you know we're talking a family incident, and and that makes it even harder to rationalize because you know I I can't fathom doing something to my own child, so a lot of other parents are are thinking the same thing like how does this happen, and so it needs to go somewhere, and and if it goes nowhere bad things happen so they got to find somewhere to go but you know the community at large has been very supportive uh fans want to do more and we'll see what comes from that you know there's been calls for helmet stickers or or patches or or something to to just to just honor him and you know that that would be really cool uh you you do that for 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 players like that especially in the situations to show that you know he mattered and he did you know, Otis mattered, and he still matters. And, uh, you know, we, we lost a good one. We really did. We definitely did. I'm one that's made an impact uh, that will last forever uh, here at UCF. Well said, uh, Andrew. Well said. We'll have more of the Black and Gold Banneret podcast after this. Welcome back here to the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Well, UCF volleyball course making their fifth, uh, fourth straight NCAA tournament appearance, fifth under head coach Todd Dagenet. They found out on Sunday night where they would be going. UCF will be heading to Los Angeles, first time since 1997 in a normal NCAA tournament year. Of course, uh, that UCF will be uh, outside the state of Florida for the NCAA tournament. They will be open up against Pepperdine on Friday night at 7.30. Of course, for Todd Dagenet, he was named American Coach of the Year on Tuesday, back-to-back -back years for him. And he's built this program now to make it as he takes this program to his fifth year, uh, fifth time into the NCAA tournament. Of course, it's kind of full circle for Todd Dagenet. When he was hired to be the head coach at UCF in 2008, he came over from USC when he was the assistant coach under US legendary head coach Mick Haley. Jeff Sharon uh, spoke to Todd Dagenet on Monday prior to Jeff having surgery and prior to Todd and UCF traveling out west to Los Angeles. Here is Jeff's conversation with Todd Dagenet on the Black and Go Banneret podcast. Jeff Sharon along with you here, and it is NCAA tournament time for UCF Volleyball. They uh, are in for the fourth consecutive time as four-time running American Athletic Conference champions and joining me now their head coach Todd Dagenet 
fresh off of the uh, selection show party on Sunday, which immediately followed his Green Bay Packers victory over the L.A. Rams. Uh, and lo and behold, you're going to L.A. too, Todd. So congratulations, first of all. <laughs> it is. It's, it's exciting to go back to, you know, where I came here from was L.A. Now, it's not uh, it's not USC, but um, I've had many good memories inside Pauley Pavilion, and hopefully we have our chance to have more. I was going to say you have you're treading on a hostile ground once again, heading into <laughs> Pauley Pavilion after you know your previous career at previous stop in your career at uh, Southern Cal. What was your favorite memory in Pauley Pavilion of some of the matches that you uh, you won as an assistant there? Well, I'll tell you, we had one match uh, where the entire men's swim and water polo team showed up in their speedos, sat in the front row, and those bleachers were right up against where we serve. And so our players would have to go back and serve, let's just say very close to people right behind them standing up in their speedos. <laughs> and they shouted things and they said things and it was not it's, the most family friendly environment. And you won anyway. <laughs> we pulled it out. Right. Well, let's talk about this first round. All right. So this is unusual. All right. So five, here's a little stat Eric Lopez gave to me. Five of the last seven times UCF volleyball has made the NCAA tournament, you've been shipped to Gainesville. All right. The other two times were when you hosted in 2018. And then, of course, last year when the whole tournament was in Omaha, Nebraska because of COVID. But not this time. They ship you out to Los Angeles. Tough road trip? Tough road trip. Um, no doubt about it. Uh, not, you're dealing with the uh, time zone change. And then once you get there, you're dealing with two national championship level teams plus Fairfield. I don't know much about them, but um, we have to deal with Pepperdine first. And that is right. a national championship final four experience team. And then should we get through and should UCLA take care of Fairfield? Now we're taking, you know, playing another multi-time national champion. So uh, the competition's going to be tough. Um, you know, we're playing well. I, I like where we are. I like our ability to bring our best product to the floor out there. And that's all you can really hope for. Um, but yeah, it, it's so tough that we're actually leaving tomorrow night. We'll get a practice in. We'll leave Tuesday night. Well, you're, do, you're doing the, uh, you're doing a red eye out there. No, it's not, just the evening flight we'll uh, practice, right after we practice, we'll head out and kind of get settled in. And then we will train at the U S Olympic training center for a day. Um, Karch Karai, the national team will coach was kind enough to set that up for us. Um, so we'll get a training, uh, training block in there on Wednesday. That'll be, a, I guess, an unofficial practice, right? And then we get an official practice on Thursday inside Pauly. And then off we go on Friday. So I want to talk a little bit more about Pepperdine, your first uh, round opponent. They finished the season 22 and five. They were third in the West Coast Conference. BYU won the conference uh, and, and beat Pepperdine twice this year. But this is, this is no slouch of a team either. Their RPI is 37. You guys are 25. Um, Scott Wong has been there for seven years and has a career record of 125 and 75. And this is a, a very good offense. They're right there neck and neck with you in the offensive statistics, uh, in terms of the NCAA 31st in kills per set, uh, 42nd in hit percentage as a team, 
what are the challenges that they bring to, or you guys, I should correct myself, are 22nd in the final RPI. What are the challenges that that they bring to you uh, from a matchup perspective? Well, I think, first of all, they're at home. I, that in itself is uh, a matchup advantage. Um, they, you know, a lot of those California players grow up playing volleyball since they're five years old. And uh, the team is loaded with high IQ, uh, great volleyball players. And so, you know, that's going to be a challenge because they're going to bring a, a high level IQ to the floor. Now, we certainly have players that can do that as well. Um, but a lot of these kids have been playing volleyball since they're five years old um, on the beach, indoor, wherever, you know, they can play volleyball. Obviously, in California, it's a lifestyle. It's, you know, like soccer is to England and Great Britain. So um, that's going to be a challenge. Other than that, you know, it's going to come down to who is able to run their offense and how do you do that? You win the, the passing game. We got to win the passing game against these guys. Um, and that's, that's really going to be a goal is that we have to be better than them in passing so we can run our offense. Whichever team runs their offense better is going to win this match. So it's going to be a big serve pass battle, um, as most volleyball matches are. But this one is going to be exceptionally strong because I think both teams can pass really well. And I think both teams have their moments where they struggle. And I think uh, the team that can get comfortable and play right from the opening whistle is the team that's going to have the best chance. I think one of the fun parts about this matchup is seeing, even though they're not going to be going actually really head to head, but the two best outside hitters for these two squads, obviously we, what we know, what can we possibly say about McKenna Melville who uh, announced she and uh, um, Amber Olson announced that they're coming back next year for an, for their, for their final year as super seniors. So I know you're happy about that. Uh, McKenna seventh in the country in kills per set. And she's facing, and, and you're facing Rachel Aaron's, uh, from Pepperdine, who is top 10, or who's 10th right. in, uh, in the country in that same statistic. So um, it's kind of like a mirror image, right? I mean, it, it, how do you, how do you, it's, uh, you know, I look you, at the teams, I look at the teams on paper and you could take the names off of, you know, the top of the paper and it'd be really close. Um, it's just, a, it's a coin flip. It's two teams that are almost exactly the same. Now they're, better at different things or in different areas at, uh, than the other, each team has their own advantages. But if you look at the bottom line points per set, um, you know, the important categories, both teams are just about the same. It's going to be a, a wonderful matchup for us. Um, you know, we're going to have to go out there and we're going to have to bring, uh, bring our brand of volleyball a long distance and hope it, uh, hope it works out for us. Take me behind the curtain a little bit here and tell me about not just, it, you know, we, we can talk about on the floor stuff. You know, it, it is what it is at this point, but the, the amount of logistical preparation that you and your staff have to go, go through in order to prepare for a trip like this, it's different than going to Gainesville. Um, obviously different than staying at home if you had the chance to host, but what are some of the extra, what's some of the extra work that you and your staff have to do to get this trip ready and your team ready to be focused for that match on Friday night? Yeah. The, the tough thing uh, was we immediately went to work last night because anytime you're traveling that far, trying to find flights, trying to find 
um, practice time. Um, you're trying to make it so it's not so condensed and causes anxiety. And that's why we're going out on Tuesday. Um, it was, we were right at work and um, I'm, you know, we were in the office till close to midnight and I'm sure Brian and Jenny were on film till well into the morning just to get kind of a skeleton report. And then we'll keep adding to it as we go. We'll probably be adding to it on the airplane. And then once we land there, before we finalize anything. Oh, you're paying for the Wi-Fi on that flight, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt. <laughs> the Do you guys on a, on a trip like that, do you set aside time to have some fun out there in Los Angeles? I'd, I'd really like to. Um, going out there the extra day might give us a little bit of time. Maybe we'll get to go see a beach or <laughs> you know something like that. But no, it, you know, these things with all the homework, the tests and everything that we have to worry about off the court, and rest and nutrition, um, strength and conditioning. There's, there's just not going to be a lot of time. Um, you know, with myself and TJ having been out there, you know, TJ's from there. There's a lot of things we'd love them to see and do, but something like this, you just, you don't have any time. It seems like you have all the time in the world, but you really don't have any time to move a group of 22 people around that fast. Not to look ahead too much, uh, but your assuming you get through this extremely difficult Pepperdine match, and and we've talked about that obviously, uh, likely next second round matchup with UCLA. Um, what do we know about the Bruins this year? I know that they came in, uh, they had, they were this close to winning the Pac-12 title. It came down to that last regular season match against USC, and they lost in five. And that handed the Pac-12 title to Washington. So um, quick scouting report on them as far as what you know. I'm going to answer your question with a short and a long answer. The short answer is uh, UCLA is really, really good. And the long answer is I don't even want to think about UCLA for <laughs> a very long time. You so will not let me get we'll, anything out of you. We will, we'll, we'll think about UCLA um, if the time is right. But no, I'm not because – Pepperdine, Pepperdine is not your typical first round matchup. Right. Um, it's not like we're playing some 300 RPI team. Um, they're just behind us. And so it's a coin flip. And if we don't give every ounce of energy to Pepperdine, there is no bother looking at anybody else. So UCLA is really, 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 really good. That's all I know. One last word. One last word on um, McKenna and Amber coming back. I know how happy you are to see them finish up. McKenna talked about how she wants to be a teacher. And, you know, obviously we know about her mom, Kathy Gillen, being a coach and, and being in an education. And I think you've always fashioned yourself as an educator really first. Um, how happy are you to know that they, that they're coming back and, and, to, and, <laughs> and to, that they want to, that they want to, you know, finish, finish the deal here. The, the fact that you have, you know, a potential setter of the year for the conference and a potential player of the year for the conference coming back. Uh, I, I don't know if I have words to contain or say how excited I am about having those to come back, you know, leading the core group that we have remaining and the group that's going to be coming in. So, um, yeah, when, when we went through senior night and they said, well, we're just going to hold out, you know, I think they were kind of waiting to evaluate their lives and, uh, 
I'm glad that whatever it was, they evaluated and decided it was a good good time to come back for one more year. I'm sure the conference is not going to be very happy about that, but um, we are. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, it's been, what a year it's been for you guys. Um, yet again, four straight trips to the NCAA tournament, four consecutive American Athletic Conference championships. And, and my favorite statistic that we keep uh, counting, 70 74, I've lost count now, 74, I believe, of the last 78 against American Athletic Conference opponents. But you won't be playing anyone in the conference here. It's uh, irregular competition in the NCAA tournament. Todd, safe travels out there. Good luck and stay healthy with the preparation. And we will be seeing you on uh, Friday night. Match time is already set, by the way. They helped you out with that match time, by the way, 7.30 Eastern. 7.30 Eastern time. Yeah, we actually uh, caught a break on that one. Yeah, they're not. Uh, they're not starting you up at ten o'clock. No, you know? <laughs> no, we don't. It's not ten o'clock. Uh, it, we're going to be playing right in a sweet spot for us. So uh, I like that. I think it's going to serve us well. All right, UCF against Pepperdine in the NCAA first rounds at Poly Pavilion at UCLA. UCF fans out in Los Angeles, you have officially been put on notice uh, to be at Poly Pavilion on Friday, December third, seven thirty Eastern. That's uh, 4.30, I had to do math real quick, 4.30 Pacific time at Pauley Pavilion to see your Knights take on the waves in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Todd Dash, thank I'll you I'll tell you so what, much. I'll, do, I'll do this, okay. Jeff, before you sign off. Okay. I, I get six tickets. Um, if there's six fans out in LA, the first ones to contact me by my email, they will get those six tickets to go Ooh. watch that match. Ooh, Okay. I just so, have to look up my email on the internet. Please have to find Todd's email yep. right find now. My, find my email and prove that you're from LA and <laughs> I will get you a ticket for until I run out. Awesome. <laughs> All right. It's a shame. I'm not out there right now. I take you up on it. <laughs> uh, Todd Dagenet, head coach, UCF volleyball. Todd, good luck on Friday. Good luck during the weekend. Have fun out there. I hope you see some old friends and, uh, and bring home a couple W's. What do you say? That'll be nice. Thank you very much, Jeff, for all the support this year. And thanks again to Coach Dagenet for uh, taking a few minutes of his busy sketch, obviously, to talk to Jeff. That was recorded on Monday. That was recorded on Monday, uh, that interview. Joining me now is our own, very own Bryson Turner. And Bryson, you've covered this team the whole year. I mentioned Todd was named Coach of the Year, but this has been a historic season, and that continued on Tuesday with the awards, didn't it? Oh, yes, indeed it did. For one, McKenna Melville got the Player of the Year Award back-to-back in the American Athletic Conference, which it which is very well-deserved. And, and if I remember right, I believe it is the first time ever in the American a back-to-back Player of the Year has happened. Well, Jordan then, Thompson Jordan Thompson has won it multiple times. It's the first time a UCF player, by the way, has ever won it twice in any conference. Yeah. UCF player, there you are. And then Amber Olsen just one setter of the year and what's awesome both of those two are coming back so that is very exciting to see especially after receiving that news and then we have four count them four selections for the all-conference first team the first time that's ever happened in program history mckenna melville and amory watson both unanimous selections along along with Amber, along with Amber Olson and uh, and, and Claudia Dillon, Claudia Dillon, Claudia Dillon. That was the one I was forgetting. And then, and then on the second team, 
they selected Narissa Moravec. Amazing talent to team. You mentioned McKenna Melville. Your feature, uh, Know Your Night on McKenna, is out right now on blackandgoldbanneret.com. I strongly encourage it as we got to, you got we got to talk to Jordan Pingle. We have thoughts from Jordan Pingle, her former the great libero, future Hall of Famer who played for McKenna in McKenna's freshman year in 2018, part of that great team that hosted in 2018. You have you you got a chance to talk to associate head coach Jenny Mauer at the so watch party on Sunday night who recruited McKenna. Obviously, you have comments from Todd Dagenier. Just give the, the the audience kind of a taste of what they can expect on your feature on McKenna. What kind of what did you learn from doing that feature on McKenna? Well, I think the biggest thing that I learned about McKenna is just how much of a of a I guess role model and leader, or and or really really just a player coach that she almost is. We knew, we already knew that she, you know, she grew up with her mom and uh, who's a, who is a very well-decorated high school volleyball coach in the state of Minnesota. But I think that what this feature does, because we never actually talked to her mother for this story. And instead, we fo- I focused a little more on just the dynamic that Melville brings to the team. And I think it was really, really interesting about what everybody had to say about uh, about her. And I think it really shows just how much McKenna means to this team. And I think when you read it, I think you'll be just as, as excited, if not more so than I am, about the prospect of her coming back next season. You mentioned her coming back. That was announced Sunday night. McKenna Melville and Amber Olson announcing at the watch party that was held at Burger U that they will be back for a next extra year Talk about the significance of that because they're, they're going to be the favorites to win the American again next year. And both of them are chasing records now that are now very attainable. Oh, yes, that is that is for sure. Uh, McKenna Melville, McKenna Melville is 204, if I am not mistaken. Let me double check. Yes, she is. She is 204 kills away from the all-time kills record. She recently passed Tyra Harper for second in the Houston match. And now she's 204 kills away from Renata Menchikova. And considering how many kills she gets in a season, barring barring any unforeseen injury, I, I foresee her passing that, uh, that 200 kills total sometime next season, perhaps in late September, maybe. Uh, that would be my that would be my forecast late September ish. Seeing how seeing if you can think about how much how many kills she normally gets in a match. Uh, and then you and then you, she's also, and then she's also a fourth all time on the career digs list. She's quite a ways off from from third place, uh, third place. So we'll see where she ends up there, but she'll certainly be able to increase her total there as well. And then Amber Olson is fourth all time in in career assists, so she will be able to ascend that list as well. So, so, but considering that the, you know these two considering these two you know they're both part of the same recruiting class by coach Jenny Mauer by associate head coach Jenny Mauer so i feel like these two these two players seem to have this really good dynamic going with each other and so the fact that they're both coming back next season together i think is very very key for the UCF uh, the UCF offense and i think that allows for some very uh, nice continuity in that department going forward that way all the the the, the mo- most the most that 
Coach Tajanay and the staff have to worry about is replacing the defense that you get from Anne-Marie Watson and Narissa Moravec. Speaking of Anne-Marie Watson, you did a feature on Anne-Marie Watson early in the season. I encourage people to check that out as well. In fact, Bryson, we'll, put, we'll post that on so Twitter uh, leading up to the match, the big match Friday, UCF against Pepperdine, 730. Let's talk about this I wish I, could, I wish I could pin two tweets, two tweets right? to my Twitter account for that. Because bo- I, I, I love bo- both of those articles. And speaking of Amory Watson, she's recently got, gotten into the top 10 all-time in kills now. Yeah. So if you could, seriously, like, if McKenna, I feel, I'm really glad that we did that because it, because McKenna Melville being on this team, the you know being the all the leader the leading leader of the country in kills is one thing, but then you get Amory Watson on here, who is not only one of the best blockers, but now is shown is showing to be one of the best in kills as well. I mean, this 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 team is great. I could just gush about it all day. So uh, they will be headed to Los Angeles, as we talked about. They will open with Pepperdine, who's kind of been flirting with the top 25 throughout the season, although many people believe the volleyball polls are kind of a joke. Anyway, they're uh, RPI in the 30s. They're, they're making their 25th NCAA tournament trip uh, into the field. UCLA is the national seed here. They're the 13th seed. They're the host. They will op- they'll play Fairfield. UCF Pepperdine, 730 Eastern Friday first round match if they win they play second round saturday around 10 o'clock eastern this is the thing i'm I'm fascinated about here bryson about this bracket i mentioned the first part uh which is todd returning back to los angeles he was an assistant at usc for three years under a legendary head coach national champion head coach mick haley before coming to ucf to be the head coach that's fascinating to me number two you've got three of the best offensive players in this little bracket right here. Obviously, McKenna, as we talked, number one in the NCAA in kills uh, for the season as well as points uh, for the season. Uh, She's been fantastic uh, all year. Should be a first or second team All-American when they announced that here in the middle of December during final four-week deal. But she's not the only great offensive player in this deal. You got Rachel Ahrens, Aaron's of Pepperdine, who ranks 10th in the country in kills per set, 4.79. Uh, McKennan, for example, is 7th in the country in kills per set, 4.98. Rachel's 12th in points, and then uh, as well as kills. That's going to be a phenomenal matchup on Friday night. Rachel Aaron's against McKenna Melville. Not sure we could find a better first-round matchup of two of the best offensive players in the opening round than those two and then mac may of ucla who ranks 11th in points as well as kills per set with 4.76 uh and kills as well we got three of the top 12 top offensive players in the in the country in this little bracket here this is pretty this gonna be a lot of fun i think bryson oh i agree i'm looking at the at the uh season kills list though so McKenna Melville has 578 kills leading the country. Uh, Mac May is in 10th with 495. Yep. And then Rachel Aarons is in 16th with four with 484. So I mean, when you look at the raw kills total, there is a massive gap between Melville and the and Melville and the other two. And this tells me a couple of things. Two, one of two things is going to need to happen. One, Melville, need, Melville needs to absolutely go off in this in this game. Or two, 
uh, and this is something that, you know, that may have been a little overshadowed, but I did talk about a little bit uh, earlier in the season is that, is that on the offensive side, because offensive side, they need to make sure that McKenna isn't on an Island. I mean, got balance. got to get balance offense. Yes, exactly. Amory Watson has been great in kills this great great in kills this season. I imagine we could see something very good out of her. I think the blocking certainly needs to be on point. On point. That is that is always very very helpful. So Watson and Moravic. I think Amory Watson. Like people talk about McKenna Melville, but to be completely honest, Amory Watson. I think is one of the is one of the key the biggest key players on this team on both sides of the ball. And so I think that. That pe- that people, you know, when they scheme for McKenna, they might overlook Anne Marie, and so I think that we could possibly see a good, a really good game out of out of her, but out of her. But um, other than that, I also think we should definitely want to keep an eye on uh, keep an eye on, on the defensive specialists, Chloe Shear and Caitlin Grimes. Uh, these two young young players have been doing very well this season in 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 digs and in, in the backcourt, and so I definitely want to make sure we keep an eye on them. Because you know they don't exactly have as much experience as the others in this tournament environment. Chloe Shear is a sophomore, so she she has been to Omaha, but went to Omaha. But this is a little different than that. And uh, Caitlin Grimes is a freshman, so uh, hopefully they'll hopefully the, the team will be able to help them acclimate to that environment. But I think that is also something to to watch for as well. So what? So while McKenna is obviously going to take a lot of the headlines here. Uh, there, there's a lot to talk about with uh, to talk about with this team, and I'm sure that they're focusing on scheming against Rachel Aaron's right now. Good draw. I like the fact they're out west. I know, uh, you know, my thing is they didn't get sent to Gainesville like they normally, you know, typically UCF teams do in these type of Olympic sports postseasons. I like the fact that volleyball didn't try to squish in. They, I think, six teams in the state of Florida made the tournament. They didn't try to bunch them in all together. I thought that was very positive. You know, and like I said, I don't. I, I'd rather be at a place like UCLA that's opposed to a Big Ten place like Wisconsin, who they could face in the supers, uh, in the Sweet Sixteen, I should say, or places like Minnesota, Big Ten places that would have been a big environment challenge, Nebraska, and, and all those places. I think, I think they're. I think they feel comfortable. They have been through this before. Should be a lot of fun. UCLA will stream these matches on their site. Uh, I think, and you'll have more details on that at UCFnights.com. Uh, for more details and we'll be covering uh, UCF volleyball obviously from here until the postseason we'll have it on Black Eagle Better it myself and Bryson will be covering that uh, every angle with the first match Friday night against Pepperdine but this is a big opportunity here you know obviously you had the bat you know they had the tough loss against High Point in the spring in the first round uh, this is a team that as you know Bryson been around them they got bigger goal they got big goals they want to make a deep run they want to be that first team in division one era to make it past the second round and they have the roster to do it now it, it's just now about performing uh and i think they've been waiting for this time this for a mo- for a while oh yeah i think that honestly the expectation the, uh, the expectations going in to this uh to this play the ncaa tournament is not completely unfounded because when you look at the at the at the roster roster of this team, in my opinion, it's one of the most complete teams this program has ever had since the '90s. And so the fact is, is that is that we I think that especially after last season with the loss to High Point, I think that Coach Dagenet 
and and Dajne and team really want to get this monkey off their backs and get farther than the, get farther than at least the first round. The business at trip, least. right? It's a business trip, so, as you mentioned it. So yeah, right. No, so I would. So yeah, I would say. So I do like the draw. I think it's certainly nice that we don't have that we don't have to deal with Florida all over again because let's be honest, Florida has been more a volleyball state than it's been a football state this this fall. And then um, looking and but looking at Pepperdine. Uh, I'm I'm just been taking a look at some of their stats on them and uh, ball and they've actually given up less kills than you see than UCF has this season. So I definitely want to keep an eye on that Pepperdine defense a li- defense a little bit. But uh, but UCF has gotten more kills than Pepper than Pepperdine has. So I think it'll be very interesting to see the dynamic between this UCF offense and Pepperdine and Pepperdine defense. But I would also argue that. I th- that any disparity that it might it, that um the UCF defense needs to make sure that they can respond in kind to the pepper to the Pepperdine defense and be sh- and be, be sure to neutralize and it kills from people and those like Rachel Aaron or they might put McKenna Melville on her they did um they put McKenna Melville uh, uh like defensively on uh, Michelle Wolf in the SMU game and she was listed she was a first team All American this uh, all american so you know that so you know that she's no slouch and in that sme match she still got a double double so i would say so i could i could easily i could possibly see mckenna melville being put on rachel on rachel aaron's defensively we'll see see. which i which i think emphasizes the importance of everybody else to contribute offensively because if melville's busy defending aaron's then she might not have the the hot opportunity to get like you know like 30 kills or something. We'll see how that goes. Uh, should be fun. We'll be following that very closely. Let's get into a couple other items because there's been, it's actually it's a bit, uh, some big news. You mentioned UCLA. Of course, UCLA women's soccer head coach, Amanda Cromwell, former UCF head coach, legendary UCF head coach, former uh, future UCF Hall of Famer, Amanda Cromwell, in the news reports out there from South soccer outlets that she's going to leave UCLA and become the new head coach of the Orlando Pride uh, of the NWSL here, coming back to Central Florida. Uh, pretty blockbuster news here that affects the college game and the pro game. But Bryce, this is huge. Amanda Cromwell could be back in Central Florida coaching the pro team and not and be nearby UCF once again. Oh yes, I am very excited to see that Cromwell is essentially come uh, all coming home almost. Uh, uh, so I know, I know. I heard that there was like you know, oh, bring Cromwell back or something like that. But no. Uh, but hey, I think this is the best you're gonna get from that per- from that perspective. And I think that's it's definitely a good move for the Pride. The Pride have been a very high profile team with people with with players like Alex Morgan on their roster, and so bringing in Amanda Crom- Cromwell. Who uh, who has had you know a, a very very solid track record with UCF, especially again you know UCF women's soccer has been very big with goalie goalkeepers, and so I think bringing in Amanda Cromwell, I I, I could imagine Cromwell uh, really helping improve uh, helping improving the Orlando Pride goalkeeping because if there's one thing that she might she will have learned from she will have well especially if she. Especially if she brings in her longtime goalkeeper coach that UCF, Donna Fister, uh, is a part of that. We don't know that. That's just speculation on that. couple things. It's worth pointing out. Cromwell and Tiffany Roberts-Sahedek were teammates. They played together in the U.S. national team. It is also worth pointing out Amanda was at 
Tiffany Roberts Zahedak's introduction press conference when she was announced as the head coach when Cromwell left UCF to go for to UC, uh, UCLA. So it's, as I understand, they have a good relationship, and I think they're gonna they're gonna be fine uh, on that. So that's one I thing. Say, Remember, you know, I would say I would say keep an eye out if any of UCF if any of the UCF women's soccer players decide to go pro. Keep an eye on the Orlando. Pride. That's what I'm saying. That, right. I think that's a valid point. There could be that could become a pipeline for sure. The second thing and talking to people that are in the know uh, when it comes to this, I think some of the motivation behind this is Amanda Cromwell, I think, has done everything she could do at UCLA. The other, and I think her goal or one remaining goal is to become the next U.S. national head coach of the women's national team. I think that is something that she is thriving, uh, trying to shoot for. And I think in, in talking to some people, adding this to your resume, being a pro head coach alongside being a college head coach experience will help her take that next step and be possibly in position to take over and be the next U.S. women's national head coach for maybe either the next Women's World Cup uh, cir- uh, circle, uh, you know, cycle or after that. I think that's the long-term goal here for Coach Cromwell. Plus, she obviously has an affection for the pro game. It wants to help it grow, and I think Orlando, she likes Orlando a lot. I think it's a great move for the Pride. Uh, I think it should help them from an interest standpoint locally. It's very interesting because Becky, uh, you know, the Florida longtime head coach was the interim head coach this past season for them. Now it's Cromwell uh, that will take over, so according to the report. So very interesting news uh, out of the soccer world for there from that standpoint. And think of the coaches we're going to have in town with Cromwell, and then obviously Tiff, and then of course Scott Calabrese over on the men's side, and of course the men's side big offseason questions where they're where they're going to call home in a couple of years. So that's the big story in soccer. Softball. Caramel hey, Hodger called it a foot uh, called it a football football schools. You know he loves yeah. he loves soccer, and so you know I never underestimate UCF soccer because there is definitely a lot to like. In well, the- and I would ex- I would expect Cromwell to get honored at some point by UCF, as I mentioned, whether it be in the Hall of Fame, which I think now is definitely much more wide open because she's not I- calling, coaching during the college season. Plus, she's right around town, and I think she'll be honored at the game at some point, uh, probably twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three. Isn't the um the the waiting period for a coach ten years, if I'm not mistaken? I uh, there's not been concrete answers about that because remember George O'Leary got in under that, so uh, I think Amanda could be eligible as soon as 2022. I was told by sources that she came this close to making it in 2019 class, uh, so I would not be surprised if she's one of the faces uh, one of the you know main player uh people to be inducted part of that 22 class but that's a long ways away so we'll see uh but again Manic Cromwell looks like it'll be going to town let me switch over to softball real quick because there's a couple big news items from a softball standpoint the schedule came out for UCF softball on Wednesday uh is- 7 p.m I'm really loving this drop time for UCF athletics hey you know at least it gives us a heads up they will open the season against Georgia, who made the Women's College World Series. That's going to be a big national game, which, knock on wood, I will be have the honor to call on ESPN+. Plus. Full disclosures, I interfere 15 of calling UCF softball, hopefully, uh, knock on wood. But they're going to open with Georgia on Thursday, February 10th. That's significant. Georgia was a Women's College World Series team. That'll be the first game by the new head coach, Tony Baldwin of Georgia, 
taking over for the legendary Lou Harris Champer, who retired. Baldwin and Coach Cindy Balbalone coached together on the U.S. national team under-19 team that won the gold in 2019. UCF will face 16 teams that make the NCAA tournament, three teams that made the Women's College World Series, Georgia being among them. Minnesota will be there here opening weekend, Fresno State, Longwood. They will be playing at ESPN at the St. Pete Clearwater Elite Invitational, which is a big ESPN televised tournament. Wisconsin, Michigan, Texas Tech, Tennessee, and Texas at Florida State. Whoa. The Wisconsin game on February 17th will be on ESPNU. Michigan and Texas Tech, ESPN Plus. Tennessee, ESPN Plus. Texas will be on the Longhorn Network. Florida State and ESPN Plus. Other highlights of the schedule. James Madison, Florida, Ole Miss come to the complex on the weekend of the 25th for a tournament. South Carolina comes in for a tournament uh, on March 4th. UCF will go on a long West Coast trip. They'll play at Pacific. What's noteworthy about that, that is Sydney Ball Malone's alma mater. She's the greatest player ever at Pacific. Her number is retired. This will be the first time she is at Pacific as a head coach facing her old, her mentor, Brian Cozy. He's in his 30th season at Pacific. That'll be March 8th. They'll play Iowa State NCAA tournament team, Nebraska traditional program as well. Conference play will begin March 25th in Tampa against South Florida. So the rivalry will be the first weekend right off the bat. Virginia Tech, who figures to be a top 10, top 15 team, will come here for Sunday, April 3rd and Monday, April 4th for a three-game series. You can check out the entire schedule on UCFnights.com. Bryson, your thoughts, questions you have about the schedule? Well, I think that this that uh, this schedule by Coach Cindy Ball Malone is very, very, very intriguing. And the, and one thing I'm actually noticing is that aside from conference match, uh, aside from conference matches, every single match in here is in the state of Florida that isn't that is not that is not a conference match. And I think that is. That certainly is a great job. Is a, is certainly a well outside job. the California trip well, too. Outside yeah. the California tournament, right, right, right. Aside from the California tournament, which I mean, you you basically knocked out most of your away non-conference matches and what all in one go, which I think was is a, certainly a solid move there. I think, uh, and maybe you're and you're more familiar with softball than I am, Eric. But I just want to see to see because th- this this it seems like they're going going to go through a big gauntlet. Of a schedule of a schedule where they just play game like game day after day after day after day. I mean, with baseball, at least with last season, they had like they had you know the series format where they played you know three you know four games in the span of three of three days, but you had a few days to rest before the week. Not so here a lot too much of the time with uh, softball. Before for example, they have for example they play a double a double header against South Carolina and FGCU on March fifth. March 6th, they play FGCU. They have a day's rest before they go out to California to play. Then they have a day's rest before they go out to California to play Pacific and Fresno State. Two days later, they go from, they go to Long, they go to, to Boston, they go to Long Beach for the Judy Garmon Classic. And then they only have a day to fly back to Orlando to take on Ohio State in March, on March 15th, with March 15th. So can you just, kind of talk to me about how about, about about this sort of thing and does that present any concerns for you no they did the same thing a couple years ago 
2020 before the season shut down. They go on a West Coast trip. The reason you're doing that, you're doing that for resume purposes, schedule strength, RPI, quality of opponents. I think the key there is you kind of build the bond, too, within the team, build the chemistry. Uh, it's a tough, quick turnaround, but they had success on the West Coast two years ago. So I, I actually am not as concerned about that. I'm more concerned about the strength of the schedule. It is going to be a gauntlet. Yeah, that Clearwater tournament in particular, there are no gimmies there. So I think you're going to learn a lot about this team. You might see some lump, uh, some bumps on the road, no pun intended. But I think this – I've talked to people, uh, players on the roster, I think they feel this is the most talented roster they've had, more talented than last year, which kind of surprised me when they I heard that. But it's young. There's a lot of young, super talented players. So we'll see how they handle that schedule. Uh, deal. By the way, another note: one of the star players to get to get used to this name, Jada Cody, was in is one of the forty five players in the country to be invited to the U.S. national team trials that will take place in Vero Beach, Florida, January first through the sixth. He's one of forty five players trying to make the U.S. national team in twenty twenty two for international competition. Uh, she's the first UCF player ever to be invited to the U.S. national trials. They do this every year. Because they play, even in non-Olympic years, they play in major tournaments across the world during the summer. And they usually do tryouts in January. So this is a big, big accomplishment for Jada to be a part of that. She'll obviously a starter at third base, can play catcher as well. I think versatility will give her a chance to make this team. But even if she doesn't, still just to be invited is a huge compliment and should give her a lot of confidence going into 2022. Speaking of, speaking of which, speaking of which with 2022, I actually uh, there's some softball news that broke yesterday that I that I wanted to see a reaction on. The Knights signed recently signed a two-way player from Naples High, Macy Miles. I don't know how much you follow the high school uh, softball recruiting scene, right. but uh, have you have you heard about that and like any? Reactions? I did. Uh, what I can tell you, I don't follow the the high school landscape and all that on a close base, but I can tell you that outlets that cover the recruiting aspect, this recruiting class uh, that UCF's going to have for the players that will, in, will uh, enroll in the fall of 22 is the 25th best class in the country. In fact, this is the second year in a row UCF has had a top 25 recruiting class coming in. So the recruiting has picked up to your point and will probably continue to pick up. And I don't think it's an accident, Bryson, that this comes at the news with UCF knowing they're going to be going to the Big 12 in the future, probably from a softball standpoint, the spring of 24 is when they would start the first season in the Big 12, because the Big 12 is a super strong conference in softball, and that's even with the departures of Oklahoma and Texas. They will still be a top five, top four, top five league with the additions of UCF and Houston and BYU to, to that league to go alongside Oklahoma States and the Baylors and the Iowa State. So I think you're starting to see some of the impact of UCF moving to the Big 12, helping these sports, especially in the Olympic sports, from a recruiting standpoint. So now I do. Now I also. Now also we have confirmation about. Now we also have confirmation of the fact that the American Athletic Conference Championship game is going to be played in Greenville, North Carolina, and just four days after the Knights play a three-game series in Wichita, Kansas, against yeah, the Shockers. Yep. Yeah, and so, this is the remember. Rem, yeah, remember UCF was originally supposed to host the conference tournament, and usually what happens is the team that hosts gets sent on the road. Well. 
Uh, obviously, UCF was uh, was taken away from them as far as hosting because they're moving to the Big 12. It's now in Greenville. And this is a tough stretch to your point. Wichita State, probably UCF and Wichita and South Florida are going to be your three favorites in the American to battle for the regular season championship. UCF's got to go to Wichita. That is a brutal place to play. It's a very friendly uh, offensive park. And then you got it's a tough place from a traveling standpoint. Now, because they're not hosting, they got to go from Wichita back to Orlando and then quick turnaround travel to Raleigh to Greenville, which means they got to probably fly into Raleigh, then bus to Greenville. I've done that trip. Not an easy trip. This really hurts them at the end of the year. Whereas the original plan was they go to Wichita, then just come home to host a tournament. Now they got to go back to back weeks in the tournament. That's going to hurt them come the conference tournament. That's going to put them behind the eight ball a little bit. But, you know, that's unfortunate. That's the way it goes. At least UCF will be allowed to play in the conference tournament, unlike the Colonial, which banned James Madison from their hosting, from playing in conference tournaments because they're moving to the Sun Belt. So it could be worse. But it is disappointing. That's the rippling effect of that decision. I think it's petty, but it's not going to change. And, uh, you know, they'll deal with it. And that's the one thing about the conference schedule you bring up. UCF's got to go to South Florida. They got to go to Wichita State. Those are their two main threats for the American Conference Championships. So tough conference schedule from that standpoint to go alongside the tough non-conference schedule. Uh, maybe the toughest one yet that Coach Ball Malone has put together. And that's saying something, because that 2020 schedule in particular was absolutely brutal schedule, tough. But the beauty of it is, if you recall, before the the world came to an end in 2020 in March, UCF's RPI was in the top 10, and they were winning games. That's the beauty of playing a tough non-conference schedule and playing a tough schedule overall is – you benefit from that. If you win some of those games, you're going to be rated very high in the RPI and then put yourself in position to get a high seed, maybe even host as a possibility, uh, and, and obviously get you ready for conference play. So, you know, you, you speak of James Madison, and James Madison's coming to town on February 26th. So, that should certainly be interesting. Play, maybe playing with a little bit of chip on their shoulder the sh- with, for them there. Um, also, one game that I that that I'm seeing on here that I that I definitely would like to see is going to be a grudge match with Florida State in Clearwater. Rematch of the regional final in Tallahassee. Interesting that they'll play in Clearwater, not in Tallahassee or Orlando. I believe it might be the first time those two programs have played in a neutral field. That's going to be real packed at Eddie Seymour uh, Stadium, week two of the season. So we'll have more softball talk come spring when we get closer to the season. I can't wait for that. Coming up. On the Black and Gold Banneret podcast, we're going to wrap it up with UCF basketball talk with Kyle Nash. Do we have reasons to be concerned about the men's team following the loss to Auburn and the women's team get set to go on a long road trip after their home game against Arkansas? But before we get to that, Bryson, obviously a very difficult week as we've talked about this episode, this whole episode's tribute to Otis Anderson. I want you to kind of, as a student that's gone to games as a student, uh, from that perspective, kind of give me your thoughts here this week on Otis Anderson as we all share our thoughts about Otis. Well, I remember watching Otis from the stands in 2019. That was my uh, – that's what was in stands as a student. But even before that, I was watching him, I was watching him on TV as a, as a kid at Haggerty High School in 2017-2018. And – I think that, you know, people talk about Adrian Killens and how you, how he kind of embodied the UC fast 
era uh, fast, but Otis Anderson, I think was is the underrated person in that category. I mean, looking back, it's looking back at some of his highlights that that juke that he had against FAU was just absolutely amazing. And from what I've been seeing across Twitter, he was just a, just a, like just as a vibrant uh, person to be around. And so, I mean, it's and I think that it's all sort of embodies how, you know, how much life he had ahead of him with just how, you know, right he was on the field. He could do he could do receiving. He could do a running back. You know, he was a very, very imp- uh, important offensive weapon for this U- for this UCF team that was focusing on this UC fast type th- you know, type thing. And so to see him, uh, to see his life end too soon is incredibly tragic. And I just, I, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm hearing that his mother is, who, who was also injured in the alter, in the altercation that, uh, that led to the arrest of his father. But I'm very glad that his mother seems to be recovering and that the UCF community is doing what they can to support her in this time. And uh, yeah, I I, my, I I have my thoughts on Twitter as well. So yeah, it, it's just it was a tough day. I'll say that it was a very tough day. It's a tough day, and it's been a tough week. Uh, just to deal from a, a UCF student perspective, UCF media standpoint, UCF player standpoint, UCF alum standpoint, for sure. Speaking of which, Anderson. Brian, I, I read Brian Murphy's Ode to Otis on the banneret. Yes, read that right now on blackandgoldbanneret.com. Yeah, beautiful. Very well done, Burr. Very well done. We will encourage everybody to check that out uh, if you haven't had a chance to yet. Back with more on this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And welcome back here to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Joining us now, prior to him uh, getting ready to head out to cover UCF women's basketball against Arkansas as we record this Thursday morning. Our good friend and, of course, our colleague now here at Black Eagle Banneret, Kyle Nash, joining us. Uh, Kyle, let's start with the men's side. Uh, tough night on Wednesday night at Auburn. Uh, really good Auburn team. By the way, I just want to give a salute to Auburn because that, first of all, the atmosphere in that court, that that building that Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, has kind of over there, Bruce Pearl has kind of built there at Auburn has been was tremendous. That was an environment, a very difficult environment that UCF entered. And then I think they played against two future NBA first round picks, maybe two lottery picks, depending on how they, you know, the rest of the season. Jabari Smith has been well talked about. He led Auburn with 20.7 rebounds in the ball game. He was phenomenal. He could be maybe the top two pick in the draft coming up. But then the, to me, the star of the game was Walker Kessler. 17 points, 14 boards, six blocks. I mean, UCF just had no answers for him. Uh, Auburn shot the ball well from the three-point line, 10 of 32, especially in the first half they did. UCF was led by Darius Perry, who had 18 points in the game to lead the way, but UCF only shot four of 24 from the three-point line, and as a result, Auburn gets the victory 85-68. UCF drops their second game in a row. They're now 4-2. and two. They lost to Oklahoma at home on Saturday. I know you were there, but first... Kind of your thoughts on Auburn. The way I look at it, look, Auburn is just a better team. They had the two best players on the court. 
Well, that when you have a better team and they catch fire at the same time, that's a dangerous combination all in itself. I love you that you bring up Walker Kessler. I mean, it's one, it's one, it comes off the stat sheet that he has six blocks. That's impressive. But when you can block a dude like Shikimbake Jong with the ease that he did, that's saying something, right? This is the part that you're talking about with future NBA player written all over it is when you see something like that. And just the tempo with which Auburn moved was amazing and you know the 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 one good thing that uh, if i'm johnny dawkins that i focus on when i'm talking to my guys after this game you know a 17 pointer nobody wants to experience that um but i say to them listen guys you were with them in the first half playing ucf style basketball the basketball i called for um when i talked about how uh the game against oklahoma could have gone a little bit better a three-point loss the other day against um a a current but not soon to be big 12 school in other words life where we're going to be headed in the future right allegedly by you know at least 2023 if not sooner depending on how the the suits do it but that attacking of the backcourt they had four steals eric within the first few minutes to really kind of get them in the game and assert a presence and then auburn started breaking press now if that's something that could be done or accounted for by getting more people involved in it, swinging around more depth. I don't know what the answer is tactically. That's why I'm not Coach Johnny Dawkins. But what I noticed is when they were pressing early and attacking, they were keeping up there with points. You know, uh, they, the, the points off for turnovers for UCF is 13. I'm sure most of those are from the 11 steals that they had on the night. And I mean, listen, if you go cold shooting while another team's going 31% uh, from behind the arc, you're going to get beat by a bad team that way. And here comes Auburn. <laughs> that is not a bad team. There's a reason they're ranked votes, folks. And honestly, I know UCF isn't a, necessarily a basketball popular team, but that particular performance that you saw was not only proof that they were in the top 25, but maybe they should be a little higher, even depending on how things go. Oh, I agree. I think they're an SEC title contender uh, in mm-hmm. basketball. With, the, with those two guys in particular, Smith and, and Kessler, you mentioned the defense that Auburn brings. Uh, they are going to be a team to be dealt with. And that's why, Kyle, when I looked at this stretch, I thought the goal was, you know, realistically was to split. And the one that kind of stings is the loss at home to Oklahoma. Really good game. You were there in the building. Uh, Talk to me about the Oklahoma game. You wrote about it. You can read it. People can read about the recap there and your thoughts on the com right now. But the thing that was kind of, oh, was that last possession of the game where UCF couldn't yeah. even get a shot up to tie the game up. It just it, it, And it seemed like nobody really knew wanted to either take the shot or they just didn't feel comfortable there. Maybe you know, that's part of kind of still playing again. I don't know. What what was your thoughts on that last possession there? Because that was a tight game throughout. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, Oklahoma made plays at the end. And UCF didn't. And, and listen, give Oklahoma credit, like you said. I mean, what we're coming the, – the, the thread between this game – um, Auburn and uh, when they hosted University of Jacksonville and strug- uh, struggled a bit um, even the common thread between those three games is they actually had size to compete not necessarily neutralize uh, Bakke or CJ Walker but certainly put up a little bit of a fight to where you know the, the the rebound numbers weren't going to skew in direction of the Knights you know by great uh, piece so you were in a position where the guards would have to fill in that gap with shooting, that sort of thing. But to to answer that that final possession question, uh, Coach Dawkins was asked about that 
specifically. And really what had happened, what had happened was, as they say, um, was that um, they were looking to try to get a quick two. And listen, that that strong presence in the middle prevented that. And then, then you know, once they actually reasserted in a, pres- a presence to kind of attack the lane, by then it was already too late. The, the strategy was awkward. You know, one could argue that, you know, they should have been doing some sort of picks and roundabouts to try to set up the, the, the chuck it for three. I mean, but they were looking for that. There's there's so many different pieces. Really what it came down to is right before the end of the game. And I mentioned this uh, in my article. There was a tough two pointer. Yeah, it was in the paint, but he had a, a guy in front of him. And uh, there was I think it was um, I think it might have even been Baca. He shot it over. I couldn't I could be wrong, but. Um, a very tough contested two-pointer that put Oklahoma up by three with those few seconds left on the clock. That's really what decided it for me, in my mind, to put UCF in the position to have to try to come up with that last-minute miracle from three to tie it. In fairness, by the way, Oklahoma beat Florida on Wednesday night. Florida's right, so there's a good chance, you know, Porter Moser and Oklahoma, they might be ranked by next week. So we're not – we're playing good competition is kind of my point on that. Uh my concern right now is the struggles of Brandon Mayhem and Isaiah Adams a little bit. That's the thing that kind of concerns me, Kyle, a little bit. Uh, Brandon was one for 10 against Auburn, struggled only five points in 29 minutes. Uh, he's a streaky player, so we kind of seen this before. But then Isaiah Adams, 19 minutes, scored nine points, but he was only five of nine from the free throw line. And I'll never forget during the Auburn game, where they got, I believe, a uh, you know extra free throws, a flagrant foul. I, I forget what they call it in college now because I was I was in NBA mode on Wednesday night because I was covering the Magic game. But he misses the free throw, and you could tell he was upset. And I get a sense that Isaiah is pressing at times. He's just not finding his rhythm. Are you concerned about Brandon and Isaiah? What are you seeing there? Because to me, for UCF to be an NCAA tournament team, they need Brandon and or Isaiah to get going offensively. I think that's. To me, they got to find their rhythm within this team. Right. I didn't know. I couldn't put it better. You know, you talk about depth and 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 what this team lives on, right? You you know, you you either have you could either have a Dre Fuller happen, who's getting nine points off the bench to save the day and kick some butt and you know do all that, or you may have a situation where you have a guy like a Mayhan who you use the word streaky. If you're streaky, then that means you got to come in and find fire quickly in a situation where there's depth or you're not going to be on the floor very long. And then if you're not on the floor very long, you can't get into a rhythm to get hot and have a good streak. So that's the downside. There's if you got players like that, that need to get hot, you know, and, and I think this is a bad part of the schedule to try to find that too, by the way, right. Where you're, you, you got Oklahoma and then Auburn back to back. What I think should, uh, if, if, if it were me, what could happen is that uh, over the next two games, Bethune-Cookman and North Carolina A&T, you know, not necessarily um, national powers by any stretch. This could be the opportunity for Brandon Mahan to get in the game and kind of find his rhythm. As far as Adams, like, it's different with him because he has flashes on either side. Like, uh, you know, he, he'll go for a bit, have an, had an awesome dunk in the season opener, you know, um, and then he'll go flat like you're talking about and have a moment here and there on free throws. I'm not as worried about Zay. He's just kind of having more peaks and valleys. Um, but Mayhan, listen, this is my first uh, time covering this team. And Mayhan was one of the names I was told to watch for. And to your point, he hasn't shown me too much yet. But, for the you know, as it's turned out, the team's gone and found ways to win without him nailing it. But 
if they want to beat the Auburns of the world, he's got to step in and, and, and hit those big shots. No doubt about that. And especially they got, I think Bethune, Cookman and North Carolina A&T, you mentioned that uh, Bethune is Sunday at two o'clock, North Carolina A&T Saturday, December 11th at two o'clock, both games at home. I think those are to me, the things that I want to see is I want to see mayhem and Adams, you know, get into a rhythm offensively. I think you're going to see some things cleaned up defensively uh, because then you've got, you go to temple, for your first conference game, believe it or not, December 15th, your conference opener at Temple. Then you play Florida State at sunrise, December 18th. That's a two big pivotal games. And if UCF wants to win those two games, I think got to get Mahan, got to get Adams going. Uh, I think I'm, I think this team is still good. I'm not panicking over the overall results. These are good teams they played. But I right. think you're, you're looking at some things they got to kind of get better at if they want to reach the goals of the NCAA tournament, because I think it's a very thin uh, mar- uh, margin of error to make the NCAA tournament. The American is tougher, and I think the sport as a whole, I've watched a lot of college basketball you know, over the holidays with all the tournaments. I think this year there's much more quality on the court than there has been the last couple of years. So it's not going to be as easy. It's not going to be easy to make the field of 68. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk, what's the story throughout the country, Eric, that everybody is returning, uh, right. returning people that would have graduated if it yeah. weren't for COVID. And now they're another year smarter and the chemistry is another year built. Oh, who knew it would get better. Right. You know, yeah, no doubt. So we'll see what happens with UCF men's basketball. Meanwhile, the women while uh, we were focused on Black Friday football and men's basketball, they were out in the Cancun Challenge at Riviera, uh, Mexico, and swept their two games. They beat Idaho State 58-41 and then beat USC 56-47. They outscored the Trojans 22-7 in the fourth quarter to pull away and win that game. Diamond Battles was the tournament MVP in the game, uh, in that uh, tournament. She had 13 points to lead the way uh, in the victory against USC. Once again, defensively, they kind of clammed down on the Trojans. They really shut them down. It held them to a 13 for 47 from the field, uh, 27% from the field for USC. And uh, UCF defensively finding a way. And it was great to see Diamond Battles, who's had two great games, uh, 100% healthy and active there. Uh, Kyle for UCF and now they will host Arkansas a tournament team at home this is a big game UCF women's basketball is getting votes who's to say if they were to knock off Arkansas maybe for the first time in the division one era UCF might crack the top 25 that's how big this game is with Arkansas yeah isn't that amazing though and 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 listen Eric give it where it's due even before the Cancun challenge happened they played against Belmont a team that's notoriously good for shooting from three and the kind of team that could surprise UCF. And, and, and y- y- listen, this group is not known for uh, chucking it from the cheap seats. That's not really their uh, their their forte. But in the second half, really started to li- light it up, and it was a shootout that UCF won. You're not supposed to see that from these ladies. This is a power team, right? Coach A believes in post players and things like that. But they were firing um, from the arc as well, and I want to bring that in there. I know that game's a couple of weeks back before the Cancun Challenge there, but – that's I think that's this, whatever happened in the Tennessee game. This team's woken up since then, right? They haven't lost to beat four more wins since then, and they're coming in. Um, this Arkansas game, to your point, it's a big deal. But Eric, what I want to also point out going into tonight, uh, where I will be in the house and definitely be writing about it. Something else I'm going to uh, be interested to hear from Coach Abe about is for the next month. 
basically. Yeah. They are not going to be in the house. So, um, you know, how do you prepare for a, a, a series of road trips, a run like that? You know, going to be very interesting to see. But I'll tell you, if you're going to have to face that, you might as well do it on a hot streak. And if you can't do it on a hot streak where you happen to beat Arkansas, that'd be nice. You know, you make a great point, And I'm glad you know about this schedule. Uh, it's pretty wild. After the home game against Arkansas, Sunday, December 12th, they're all for 10 days. They're at Mercer. Then on Tuesday, the 14th, they're at Seton Hall. Really good Big East program. The big one that's probably circled in a lot of fans, December 18th at Iowa. That is a monster game. Caitlin Clark, that's a name to remember. We'll talk more about her as we get closer to that Iowa game. She is arguably the top two women's basketball player in the country. Uh, Iowa is a Sweet 16 team. Uh, Buckins, uh, Beckers is the Connecticut star player that's probably ahead of Clark, but she's a future WNBA star. UCF's going to have their hands full with Iowa, but that's part of this road trip. They go to Princeton on the 29th before finally UCF comes back it's January 2nd. That is a long time, but this they're not ducking anybody. <laughs> they're getting the frequent mileage on that. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, hey, if anything, if anything, they can buy the flights in bulk, so to speak. Yeah. And, and listen, the, what I'm, you mentioned, you mentioned the big game against and they're going to face Clark at Iowa. I, I can't help but think to myself, as you mentioned that, Eric, that this women's team is designed to defend against star players. Right. Defensively built. Don't come in the middle because you'll have to battle Destiny Thomas and Brittany Smith. Um, that That's its own challenge in and of itself. Um, and then outside, they play relentless defense, much like the men. They they like to go full court press and uh, attack defensively to force you into mistakes. How many points has Diamond Battles had off of steals? And then, you know, with, with Alicia Lewis doing her thing at the point guard spot, it's very interesting seeing, seeing Diamond Battles play off the ball a little bit more. Certainly a key to her uh, higher point totals of late. No doubt about that. Should be fascinating. So, yeah enjoy UCF uh, women's basketball in person for the last time for a while, for the last time in the new year. This is it. The next time you'll see UCF women's basketball at home, we'll have a new year, 2022. It's going to be wild how they do against Arkansas. Again, NCAA tournament team, one of the top teams in the SEC, uh, in last year anyway. And then obviously this long road trip. You don't see this often, but this is part of Coach Abe and their way of bonding, right? Chemistry, spending a lot of time together, and to kind of build that toughness uh, and be prepared once you get into conference play is the goal here, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned conference play in preparation. Much like Coach Dawkins, Coach, uh, Coach Abe has done her part to make sure they're ready for life at the next uh, at the next chapter within the Big 12 when they get there. And and how many? I, I lost count of how many times at Hoops Media Day, I know that's a month ago now, but that she mentioned uh, how difficult scheduling was to get cats – uh, to get teams to play um, UCF on the schedule, and here we go with four with a four game uh, away streak. Um, two of them, by the or no, excuse, three of them right together with Mercer, Seton Hall, and Iowa. So you know, at least when they uh, head to Princeton after the holiday, they've got you know eleven days there. But uh, rigorous is the word I would use, Eric. Well, it should be a good one there. Enjoy the game. I know you'll recap it uh, for us here on blackandgobenneret.com afterwards. Make sure you check that out as well as uh, all the latest in UCF news. We'll wrap this show up, though, Kyle, with your thoughts. Uh, we've kind of obviously tribute this show to Otis Anderson, the late Otis Anderson. And I remember you know, you have covered him 
for lengthy. You know, we had Brian at the beginning. We've had, uh, you know, Andrew's thoughts, you know, Bryson's thoughts. And I want to get your thoughts because you covered him and spent a lot of time with him. And this has been a difficult week for us as UCF alums and a UCF family with the loss of Otis at such a young age, 23, and a tragic, tragic uh, deal. What, what's kind of your two thoughts uh, here as that's kind of a, an Otis here uh, moving forward? Yeah, no, listen, when it, when it comes to Otis and, and, you know, just for a bit of context, I've been covering UCF um, football. Uh, this past season was my fifth season. Um, so I was doing it before I was here at the Banneret. But um, through that time, you know, back when you still had breakout interviews before COVID, um, Jawan Hamilton, Adrian Killens, and Otis Anderson uh, were the guys I was talking to uh, just before the season started in 2017. And it's funny with with Otis. I never seen a cat who's more modest and yet more playful at the same time. And, and it, every time I talked to him, it would be him and Adrian Killens having so much fun. And it was a very spirit lifting kind of thing. And I and I think in all this tragedy, what what I found the most the, the what's toughest for me to kind of wrap my arms around is that how much he paid tribute to his dad um, throughout that too. So you know, adding just more. Uh, confusion is what's going on but what i do remember most is the mix of tenacity and playfulness in this kid you, you know uh, i asked him once because he played all over the offensive field except for on the o-line basically right i asked him once so you're getting in the backfield you're you're splitting out at wide receiver what should i list you as and he just smiled and said offensive specialist like that joke right there being playful but being competitive really kind of is is a microcosm of the personality and, and, and tenacity of what he brought, not just to the game, but even when he was at the press conference, he would be all business but would make jokes when he could, that kind of thing. And I think that was just his approach to life based on my interactions with him and, um, you know, a, a uh, certainly prayers to those around him, his fans and all of that and, and well wishes. And, yeah, I'm – uh, as even as somebody who who air quotes only covered him i'm still kind of trying to figure it out myself um, i think i think we are i think we are unfortunately uh but as i mentioned with brian at the beginning of all this how many people can say they lived 23 years and made the impact that otis did and i think hmm. i think this this episode hopefully we between our staff gives you an idea of the impact otis has made because everything you said is exactly what i agree with Especially, he was always the guy. Oh, it's t- today we're going to get to talk to Otis. This is going to be fun. Yep. I, I really don't know what he's going to say, but it's going to be really good. But he was very thoughtful and, and so smart. You know, I remember asking him at meet about being in the room, in a running back room, in a wide receiver room. Is that really difficult? And he's like, hey, man, it's Paul. It's, we're just playing ball. And I, I like hanging out with these guys. You know, that was kind of the way he talked. And I always say he was the glue of this team in a lot of ways and uh, his memories will last forever that's that's for sure oh uh, undoubtedly so many iconic moments i'll never forget that 2018 championship game where he catches that touchdown that building goes up you were in there you know and he's got the peace sign uh there's so many so many we could do yeah. hours of shows uh, of the highlights but uh he's always going to be a big part of ucf football program he's always going to be a part of ucf in general and uh man it's just, uh, it's unfortunate that he's gone, but we will always have his memories. And I think that's that's the be- best way I can, maybe we get get through this together uh, as a UCF family, as UCF alums. It's, uh, it's 
it's been a tough week, but I think uh, yeah. we've done a good job of talking about Otis and the impact he's made. I think everybody's kind of offered their piece. Kyle, you were fantastic on that. I want to thank everybody on this show, Bryson Turner, Andrew Glukoff, of course, Brian Murphy was with me at the beginning, and for Jeff, who's obviously recovering from back surgery uh, as well. I know it's been a tough week for him, not just physically, but obviously with this news. Uh, but he's uh, it's been a difficult week for everybody. But we'll never forget you, Otis. Uh, you will be always be a part of UCF lores and legacy. Thank you for all the memories, Otis. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret.